Uh, this is Makeup of Vanity Set, and you're listening to the Paradise Arcade. The Paradise Arcade contains graphic language. Listener discretion is advised. Listening to the Paradise Arcade with Kyle and Eric, promoting synthwave music and culture. Welcome to another episode of the Paradise Arcade. This week we have a very special guest, Makeup and Vanity Set. Welcome, Matt, to the show. Thank you. Uh, it's very exciting to have you on. Um, obviously, the the caliber of what you do, all the things that you've got going on and have done. Um, make this for a really exciting opportunity for us to sit down and chat with you. And, um, you know, you've got a new album that was just released. Um, Kyle and I have both had a chance to listen to it, so I obviously want to talk about that. Before we go any further, I just want to say please uh, reach out to us on social media. We're on Instagram. I think it's The Paradise Arcade on Instagram. And then on Twitter, Paradise underscore Arcade. There's also our Synthwave Vinyl page on Instagram. Uh, Paradise Arcade Vinyl. Get, get on that. Uh, and then you can find us... <clears throat> pardon me. You can also find us on Facebook, and then our, you can find our show pretty much everywhere. The only thing I haven't done yet is accepted for Amazon Podcasts. I'm a little weary about that. You're holding out. Holding out on Amazon. Yeah, I don't know. They they send this thing so that the big stipulation is you're not allowed to disparage Amazon in any kind of way if you're mm. part of their podcast. I was just about to do that, so I don't, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we don't usually talk about that kind of thing, but I'm like, yeah. Oh. Where's my 64 ounce Cholula that I've had to order twice <laughs> and has been held up in delivery? <laughs> Damn it. That's what I want to know. I need. That's tough. I mean, is does Amazon? I guess Amazon probably has a pretty healthy audience for podcasting. I mean, they're pretty big. They have a lot of stuff going on. So, I, if you were a podcast connoisseur, mm-hmm. would you think like, hey, Amazon, I'm my hub for all that is good. This, I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating Amazon right now, but I would not. I wouldn't either. Yeah. No, I think they bought another company. I forget who they bought. Audible or another. Mm. And so they're trying to diversify their stuff as everyone does. If I was a big podcast person, I'd probably be that person who found the most obscure podcast outlet. Be like, I only get them from here because they only have the good content. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, bringing the hipster thing back. That's I mean, cool. Amazon, Amazon streams music. And I can't say that I've ever gone to Amazon with this explicit purpose to like find music and listen to it. Um, I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of people do, but it's just never been. I look at Amazon like it's almost like just a online retailer. I don't really expect content from it. Although I guess I watch movies on Amazon Prime, so that counts. So maybe I don't know. That's. I feel like that's a little bit different. And if I buy something off of Amazon, I know a lot of people are like, I buy everything on Amazon, but it's Mm -hmm. just like, for me, like a sundry. That's (laughs) what I get on Amazon. Here's the thing I need. I'm not willing to go to the store to get it. (laughs) (laughs) 
drop it off for my lazy ass. I need 64 ounces of Cholula hot sauce. <laughs> well, where are you gonna, else are you going to get it? You can't go to the store, can you? No, you can't get it anywhere else, actually, yeah. that I know of. So That's impressive. It's a lot yeah. of hot sauce. That's it, and the reason I'm getting one is because I just used up my last 64 ounce bottle of it, <laughs> and that's not a year old, by the way. No, no, it's uh, maybe a couple months. Wow. Holy shit! What? That's impressive. Some sometimes I feel like there are some foods that I don't know if I would eat without hot sauce. Like I love Taco Bell. I'll just put that out there, Taco Bell. Border foods, if you're listening. <laughs> I love Taco Bell. I don't know what's going on right now that they've, like, axed everything from the menu. But, like, yeah. I don't know if I would eat anything from Taco Bell, like, when I really critically think about it, if I didn't have any hot sauce, whether it's theirs or Cholula or something else. That's a good point. That's valid. I feel like I – it's weird. So I don't eat – I've been pescatarian for two years now, which means I just eat fish. I don't eat any meat and Taco Bell kind of killed me because they took away all the potato stuff. Right. So that, for what me, a terrible decision. I just, I, I feel like I have this aversion to the refried bean burrito just because when I was in college, you know, everybody was broke and you could get a bean burrito from Taco Bell for like 60, 60 cents or something ridiculous. And so it was like the ramen of my existence. Uh, and I just can't bring myself to eat it anymore because now I'm like, I don't want to just, it's like I wouldn't eat ramen today, you know, like I just, right. I'm, I'm beyond that phase now. And so, uh, yeah, I loved all the potato tacos, you know, with like the chipotle sauce and stuff and they got rid of oh, all that stuff. So good. And it crippled me, man. I can't, I can't do it. And it sucks because when it comes to fast food, there's not really a ton of options if you don't eat meat. Um, no. so it is kind of lame. Like, if I'm on the road or something and I want to stop, I it makes my life a lot more difficult. So that sucks. But can we be real? Can we be honest? How much meat is actually in any of Taco Bell's? <laughs> That's We're a valid, hair valid point. Here, all right. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm just saying. I th- I thought I read something where they don't even label things as like beef or chicken anymore because there's not there has to be a certain percentage of the meat to be called that and they don't meet <laughs> that sounds like hearsay right there's now. like an fda like uh level that they have to meet and they don't meet it yeah, that's right with, with their there's meat. a lot of meat <laughs> meat going around here you know i really like their breakfast stuff and the potatoes were yeah. in most of them so it's like <sighs> yeah i don't work at six in the morning anymore though either so i don't have a chance to go there that early. i feel like that was a th- that was a thing i tried to because yeah they have they still have potatoes in the breakfast menu but they don't do breakfast all day so you can't I don't think I can just roll through there and get like a Whoa. potato breakfast burrito. So there's an exception. They still will do potatoes for breakfast because they I... had this little mini bowl that was basically just potatoes with cheese and sour cream on it. I mean, that would be perfect. Can't breakfast do it. champions. Oh, yeah. That's so good. Yeah, they were like, they cut it off and they don't do lunch or they don't do breakfast all day. And so I don't know. I just threw my hands in the air. I was like, I don't know what to do here. I mean, there's nowhere else to go. So Once upon a time, when I was working early in the morning, if I worked at 6, I would go to Ikea, and I would just fucking carb load. I would go there and get a cinnamon roll and, like, two sides of just their potatoes and blast that. (laughs) 
Like I feel like I have a connection with you on the potato, you know, front right Man, now. Man, it was the best. I don't know why they got rid of it. I don't know if they were what they were thinking. I mean, I guess I don't know if they were thinking. Yeah, I think it. I mean, obviously, it's the we we all live in the Corona world now, and so I guess they were just looking at it going, it's too expensive to try to keep that going or something so i don't know i feel like potatoes would be cheap that would be the ideal thing like come to taco bell we have potatoes you can get your potato you can get your like russian meal fix at taco bell (laughs) i love this conversation this (laughs) this is what this interview is about is potatoes straight straight to the hard topics i i love this like is probably one of my favorite ever because we have someone who's legitimately a, a big deal who just released an album and we're fucking talking about Taco Bell potatoes. <laughs> I'm sure the, I'm sure the label will be thrilled. They're like, you did an interview and you just talked about Taco Bell the whole time. That's awesome. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for talking about Taco Bell. And we are not officially endorsed by Taco Bell, by the way, we are simply, um, I'd like to be. Yeah. Just expressing. <laughs> if you're them. listening to Taco Bell. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it was a bummer. I was really bummed. So if someone, if by chance some executive at Taco Bell is listening to this podcast, just do me a solid and bring it back. You know, I, you never know the people that you that listen to your show. It's true. That's the weird, honestly, because the people that have reached out to us, I, sometimes I'm really confused. And that's okay. Because uh, I'm like, did you listen to the show? Do you know what we do? Because that that that's not really. I would like to see the Mavs special. Oh my god! At Taco Bell, bring back <laughs> potatoes. Like the Travis we... Scott McDonald's thing. I'm not quite yeah, to the level of Travis Scott, but I think that Holy we could shit. work something out. That is amazing. Like, there's probably some Nashville Taco Bell that I could like work out a deal with that they'll just make this item for me. There'll probably be like one th- employee that'll do it, and it's it not official. Happen. I have a very important uh, question regarding Nashville, Tennessee. Sure. <clears throat> so, are is there Taco Johns in Tennessee? I don't think so. Taco John? I don't think so. I've never oh heard of that. Oh my god! But I could you be were, wrong. I don't know. You're missing out. That's that's more of a like Western and an encroaching on Midwest type place. You guys are it's, in Minneapolis. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Not that I know of. I don't think I've ever heard of Taco John's. I think they are amazing. Well, let me tell you this: <laughs> they have a potato item on their menu, which go. far surpasses any potato thing on Taco Bell's thing. But Taco Bell is everywhere, and Taco John's is regional. Yeah. Is it Taco John's like a fast food joint? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. It's like a. I mean, I would say it, it, it is one step above Taco Bell only because they actually serve real meat. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know what? In our area, there's a holy trinity okay. of fast food taco places. Each one does something different, but I would never, ever put one above any of the other ones. <laughs> okay. That's very pragmatic. I mean, it, you have to love all of them the same. It's true. I think Fair that's a, so you're making a really good point about local places, like places locally to eat, right? Is yeah. Nashville is totally guilty of this. It's like Nashville has loads of good food. I mean, there's lots of really specific non-chain places and they're awesome. But I think the problem is 
you have to cultivate that. So like if you don't, if you, if you live in a community where people don't show up for places like that, then you just end up with hardies and, you know, just garbage everywhere. And so it's good. It's, I think having that approach is really good. You gotta, you gotta equally, your patronage has to go to equally to all these places because if you don't, then they're all going to, they're all just going to dry up and then you'll end up with Taco Bell and their shitty or Subway. Not, not potato. Like the fast food hell yeah. is Subway. It, it, yeah, that is literally like the saddest thing. It's hard because like if you're like I've I've toured and touring is hard um, because especially hard if you don't eat meat because you have to basically just figure out how to exist. I, th- I feel like I've been on the road before where I've just eaten because you end up in a lot of truck stops and truck stops are typically the deal with a truck stop is it's usually attached to something like a subway, you know? Right. Um, and so your options are never good. And so you'd end up eating like just loads of trail mix or something, you know, just trying, <laughs> trying to survive. Um, it's hard. It's really hard. You have to like plan ahead. I've learned the hard way that you really do have to, you know, kind of plan ahead for how you're going to survive and exist. Do you buy, like, do you pre-buy groceries? Like, you'd, like you're going road trip to or whatever, and you're mm-hmm. like, I need to go to Whole Foods to get my stuff, because otherwise um, it's not going to go well. It depends. I feel like, to be honest, like, the whole, um, you know, trail mix type thing, like, it's snacky things are really, I think, important. It's also... you. I think it's in everybody's mind. It's like you, you go on, if you're on tour, you know, you're just drinking all the time and partying and getting crazy and eating a bunch of garbage. And I'm 38 and I can't do that. Like I would die. So for me, it's important that I kind of keep my wits about it. And I try to like eat at least somewhat healthy things. Um, So usually, I mean, I, and I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I drink. But I think that, like, you know, I can't go on tour and get bombed all the time like I could when I was 20. And I have I do try to eat things that are somewhat healthy so that I don't die. Because especially when you're on tour as a solo act, you know, I've been on tour with bands. And what ends up happening is you like as a band, it's great. Like a band can, you know, if you have six people in your band or four, even four people in your band, like everyone's chipping in they're carrying the stuff you know they're helping each other set up when you're just by yourself it's like i would load out load my stuff in which for me looks like you know a handful of road cases uh, to set up all my gear i tend to try to take hardware with me on the road i haven't used laptops live in a long time just because laptops have a knack for failing or freezing up or respect i love it's man it's (laughs) It's rough. I I was I used to play with a laptop and it just I just had too many shows where it would just fucking die on me and I had to and there's nothing worse than you're in the middle of something and it dies and you have to stop and you have to reboot the thing and it's just and you can kind of laugh it off in the moment but man it just takes you right out of it. It's like if you're watching a movie and someone just in a theater and someone just turns all the lights on, you know, it just kind of ruins the experience. And so I really dove in pretty hard into hardware and um, so I would, I, you know, I had cases of hardware, 
Um, the last tour I was on, I had a synth with me, so I'd have to set the table up, put all the stuff together, and then I'd have to go to merch and set up my merch table, pull all, and that's cases of stuff. You know, you have a couple cases of shirts, vinyl, you know, you set all that crap up, and then you sit there, and they open the doors, kids start coming in, you work your own merch table for, you know, while the first band plays. On this, on that particular tour, I was the second act, and so... I would second act or first act would finish. I'd lock up all my stuff, go on stage, play the show. Show's over. I'm like drenched in sweat. I get off the stage, make a beeline to the merch table, open up shop, sell merch. Last band plays. Then you work the merch till the thing shuts down. So you're talking like maybe, depending on the venue, most places you know it's like midnight, one o'clock, in the morning. Uh, they kick everybody out. Then you tear everything down, tear your gear down on stage, tear down your merch, and then load it all back out, climb back on the bus and try to sleep. And it's not glamorous when you when you explain it that way, but it's like it's a lot of work. So you do have to kind of like take care of yourself so you don't die. Um, that's hard. It's yeah. <laughs> Kyle. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't I, I suppose the the coming alive part is being on stage. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that that is as flawless or as, you know, you mitigate any of the stuff that could, could go wrong. Because even hardware stuff, MIDI could be funky if you're using Sure. I mean, it's it's weird. I'm, I have this weird thing. And I think it's my body's sort of natural fight or flight. Like before a show, I am the opposite of like, I think a lot of people. I'm not wired. I actually like right before I go on stage, I could actually lay down and take a nap. And I think it's my body's just going, there's some physiological thing happening with my body where I'm like, I'm just tired. And I think it's part, it's part of probably my anxiety of like going on stage. I'm just like, oh, I just want to lay down. <laughs> so like, I feel very sapped, but then I get on stage and like, usually by the time I make it to like the second track uh, of what I'm doing, um, I kind of snap out of that and then I'm good to go. And then as soon as I come off, uh, it's the complete opposite. Like I'm completely wired because I have all that adrenaline. Right. And then I'm just, and it, you know, I know obviously touring with bands and things. I like to tour with rock bands because it gives me this weird opportunity to show up and be not a rock band and, but still play really loud kind of intense music. And so I've always liked that dynamic. I feel like when I play shows where it's like an all electronic or like an all synth wave uh, lineup, you know, it's kind of like the cat's out of the bag after the first act right. plays. And so it becomes this weird, you're just kind of waiting around to do what everybody else has already done, already done. And so to me, that's a lot less interesting, but it is well, weird. It's, and it's, and it's you do. physically, it's like a yo-yo, you know? And so every night you're carrying everything in, then you're kind of worn out. Then you go on stage, you get the adrenaline high, you come off. Thankfully that tour, the last tour I was on, I just met loads and loads of kids that were super pumped to be there and had a lot of really the, the kind of the juice of that tour for me was like having conversations with people afterwards, you know, working my own merch and, and just meeting people that would, you know, tell me stories about, you know, record acts meant this to me because of this. And that was extremely rewarding. I was really pumped about that. So it kind of, that sustained that whole thing, but yeah, definitely trail mix. <laughs> uh thank you for that yeah. i was actually going to ask you that question you know what do you classify your 
music as. I mean, you you kind of put synthwave out there almost by default, but do you do you think do you feel you just do your own thing? Do you feel comfortable within that moniker? I think it's fine. I don't. I'm not a. It's the same argument that people make when uh, with producing music. Like, you know, are you a big analog guy or a big you know digital or like what you know are you a purist? And I'm really not. I think that whatever whatever mantra brings people to the to the music, I'm totally good with. I think that synthwave as a scene is a really cool thing. I think that um, you know I remember in middle school basically discovering electronic music and which for me i graduated high school in 2000 so as of 2000 represent (laughs) what what? was a y2k um and uh you know it's weird it was weird going to record stores because you have an electronic section that would be subgenre to death and you'd be looking through like you know all the avant-garde versions of drum and bass that they would feel necessary to like slap a title on and then you know or house music or you know whatever um and for me, I feel like in terms of genre, I'm like, you know, I'm good with whatever. I think Synthwave is great. I think it's, um, and Synthwave on its own is already kind of like a broad definition. You know, there's loads. Of, I think over the past probably five, ten years, I guess, it's split off into lots of different things. You know, there's Dark Wave and all these other classifications that people want to take on, and that's fine too. Like, I'm, I, I think what I do sort of lives within that world but it's not as i guess i'm not as outwardly um i don't know how to say this i'm I'm not outwardly like nostalgic i guess as as far as the whole 80s thing but it's yeah synthesizer music at its core and um yeah and i but i i 100 percent uh align myself with all of the kind of overly romantic uh, ideologies of synthwave because I think that all of that stuff exists because people had this real love and kind of longing for that era of music and art and movies specifically. And so without any of that stuff, people wouldn't be showing up, you know, buying a synth, sitting in a room and making kind of romantic music, you know, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that that you gave us an answer we like to hear <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um, i mean yeah one thing someone corrected me in the dark wave thing so okay. i said dark wave to somebody and he goes no it's dark synth okay i was like oh, okay I, so apparently uh, dark dark wave apparently is an actual 80s genre of music that's true yeah um and so i got i i was corrected yeah so. I, I i you know and i'll stand corrected too i think like uh I think that at the end of the day, the labels and classifications, I mean, if that's important to you, great. (laughs) To me, I look at it and go, you know, did you, did you, um, did you feel something from the music? You know, Um, I was watching a video. There's a bass player from Nashville. He's like super well known. His name is Victor Wooten. He plays in a group with his family called the Wooten Brothers. Totally different kind of music, not synthwave. And, I was watching a video with him and he was uh, playing bass and he, he basically said, at the end of the day, people aren't going to remember what you said. People aren't really going to remember what you did, but people will remember what, how you how they, how they you made them feel. And 
Yeah. I, I think that that's really important. That's kind of an important cornerstone in music. And I think that like especially to synthwave because at the end of the day like i think so many people gravitate towards it because it really makes them feel something you know they feel this really uh intense nostalgia and i think that's why things like stranger things and drive and all those like they really just touched a nerve because there were so many people out there that were sort of coming to the age where they're consuming all that kind of content uh, for lack of a better word and it just really really resonated with them you know just mm -hmm. rang rang that bell and um, yeah, I think that's like the most important thing for me. I don't, I don't really get tripped up by the classifications. Yeah. And, and I would agree. So I think there's a couple of things. I would say you certainly made me feel some things. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, I would say that at this point you really have to make you synthwave has to be by default, a much larger genre. It's like saying rock, right? Mm -hmm. It's rock. Synthwave is like, it's basically just focused around a synthesizer sure and then whatever comes out of that is whatever comes out of it and then there's all these other variants cinematic outrun dark synth whatever sure. those are all things that you could play with within the within the scope of a synthesizer because you do whatever um and then the feeling thing i think you really hit on something very interesting because like when i saw the movie drive because i'd seen other nicholas winding reffin movies before drive came out I was, I was already aware of his stuff mm -hmm. but drive really made me through music feel something and i think that's why it resonated so much with myself and a lot of other people especially at that time with the uh, just the focus on a, a three minute pop song really quick um almost soulless you know you know that is not exclusively a true statement to everything but it felt like in the world it was going by really fast and drive really made you sit down and actually have a feel about something. Sure. And in what you do it is obviously ties into that. So without necessarily um, being explicitly like I'm synthwave, I'm doing this thing. Like you go after one of the core tenets of the genre, which is making people feel things. Yeah. And obviously I think, I think scoring the a bunch of stuff. Yeah, I, I think at some point you come into, or at least, well, I speak from experience, I guess. Uh, you know, I got to a point where it was important to me that the music I was making had to follow some narrative um, and had to follow some type of uh, concept. Um, at some point, I just realized I couldn't just write a bunch of songs and slap them together and call it an album. And I think that's partially because I grew up, I was born in 82, I grew up watching those movies. Um, I grew up watching, you know, I, I, one of my earliest m memories of, uh, film, uh, and really my, it was my grandfather got me into film. He was a big film buff. And so, you know, one day I'm sitting there and he's telling me, oh, there's this movie and it's about a metal machine skeleton that comes from the future to like find this woman and like hunt her down and this other there's a human that comes back and all and they are like doing battle and i remember as a kid thinking that's the coolest thing i've ever heard in my life you know and i really yeah. wanted to see and in my mind i already had this kind of imaginary like i was picturing it and and you know i'm sure you know, at the time i think my mom was sitting there going like don't tell him about these things <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you can't watch that movie um but i feel like um there was a lot of time for me to digest 
kind of and I think what was really important about uh, the t- that that era was you had an era where you you obviously didn't have social media, you didn't have cell phones. There was not an expediency for information, and so the kind of currency at the time was, I think, for a lot of people, fantasy. And so you had this kind of deluge of amazing things that came out. Um, you had amazing movies. You had you know Spielberg's operating at his peak. You had uh, James Cameron was pumping out lots of really interesting movies. Um, and a lot of the stuff that was coming out was just deep fantasy, and it was a, and a lot of it was very original. It was not a sequel. It was a very original idea that was just just went beyond the realm or the scope of like what you could imagine. And so, I think for lots of people that was a really kind of fertile time for being a, a theater goer. But I think for kids, it was like it just kind of opened your world, and and in a lot of ways shattered it. You know, the any expectation of like what could be done it was it was it was always beyond that i remember seeing all those movies for the first time and thinking like i just can't believe it you know i can't believe yeah. that this is a thing that someone thought up and made it happen and i still look at that stuff and feel that way even as an adult i look back and i think it's incredible that someone just dreamed that up and that's they went to a studio and said this is my idea and they went great i'm going to give you millions of dollars to make that um i yeah. feel sorry for anyone that didn't grow up in that time because you, you fundamentally you're missing out on because like it's the Amblin people. So it's Steven Spielberg, uh, Coppola. Um, I mean the whole list of, of directors who are all associated and it's amazing mm-hmm. the upstart from the seventies and then like the Spielberg reaching his power in the eighties and you know, same with George Lucas and all those, they all knew each other mm-hmm. and they all had a very specific viewpoint. Even though the genres were different, they, they had a, a very much a mood, I think. Sure, uh, they, well, I think they conveyed. I think, I think it also goes to. I mean, it's another thing that I think is really interesting because musically, you know, you can go back and look at things like the Beatles, right, and the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and how they had almost like a, a rivalry, like a healthy rivalry, to yeah. make really great music. I think that in a lot of ways, in the '80s, there were lots of people that were just creating stuff, uh, specifically films. And I think they just sort of had this healthy competition to make really interesting things. And fortunately, um, I think the time during the 80s was really kind of just rife with bad news. You know, you had the Cold War, you had the AIDS crisis, you had um, stock market crashing, you had all of these things. And a lot of people were really worried about those things. And so it was kind of this perfect moment uh, for people to get away and escape and go to the theater and support these movies and they were a massive hits and they kind of opened i think a lot of doors for a lot of people just for as far as influence is concerned you know um and so i think when i think of synthwave that's what i think about i don't really think about you know you know making a record and slapping a delorean on the cover or some or something like that i think about it <laughs> thank you um and uh, you know completely like no disrespect to mitch murder like i love mitch murder but i think that like for me, it was about sort of capturing that energy, the energy of like, hey, the world is really screwed up and like bad things could actually happen. But it's important um, for me to, to speak through my voice musically to tell kind of to d- dive into the fantasy of the things that I just want to sit and dream up and imagine. And that that was the outlet, you know, making music for me. 
and that seems to be so, you know, like perfect because like you've become in essence, very similar to those, to that kind of thing now, because you're composing scores for movies. Yeah. I mean, you've... I, th- I think that, I think that the thing is like, if you're, I get a lot of emails from kids and they're like, I'm, I feel okay saying kids, I'm 30, I'm old. So like, I think that, <laughs> you know, but I get emails from people and they're like, Hey, I'm just, I'm trying to write music and I'm trying to like learn synthesis. And I always try to be super encouraging, but I also try to tell people like the key is to, there's not a, there's not a light switch. Like there's not a silver bullet. It's just, you just figure out what you want to say and figure out your voice and try to figure out how that sets you apart from the other things that are already out there. And then just work, like make music every day, you know? And because that's what I did, you know, I just kind of, once I realized what my voice was and how I wanted to use it, I just sort of, I, it was almost like a discipline. It was like, I'm going to make music all the time and I'm going to keep sort of feeding this fire. And there wasn't any one thing that like I did where it was like, Oh, now you're on the radar of these people and they want you to do, they want you to score something or they want you to, you know, there isn't sadly there's not, it's just dumb luck. It's basically dumb luck and you just work really hard and hopefully somebody likes your stuff. And you know, for me, I got lucky. I feel like people, you know, wanted me to kind of work with them and collaborate. I always tell a lot of people that are working in any form, like if you're trying to make movies or trying to write scripts, or you're trying to uh, be, a, you know, a composer and score things. I think the, the, the main kind of tenets for me for that world is work really hard, always be useful, don't be a dick, like don't be an <laughs> asshole. Because, it, I mean, it's true. I think that I agree. It's, I it's completely easy. agree with you. It's easy now because we live in a real like hot take kind of culture and everybody's off the cuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think, but I think that when you're working and collaborating with other people, you do have to be mindful of the fact that like everybody involved, regardless of how difficult or how, you know, how much of a 180 from them, uh, from you they are, they're all trying to make something cool. You know, they're all trying to make a, an interesting thing especially with films because there's so many hands in the cookie jar, you know? Um, I don't, to me, I'm always like, I don't understand how any movie gets made. I really don't. Cause, <laughs> Seriously. Cause you're talking about amazing. millions of dollars and you're talking about huge payroll and you're talking about all these people, all these moving parts. And at the end of the day, yeah, it just, it's, it's literally, it's like, I always tell people, it's like try and catch a lightning in a bottle twice. Like it just, it's just ridiculous. And but these things do, they, they happen, they get made. And so I always just, I mean, when I get, if I'm lucky enough to get to work on something with someone, doesn't matter what it is. I always look at it and I go, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I also look at it and I go, I know what I do and I feel confident in that. So I'm just going to show up like, because they've asked me to do it, like that allows me to have a seat at the table. So I don't really get nervous about it. I just, but I also, but I also have that healthy kind of nervousness. Uh, you know, anytime I start a project, I feel like I have to slowly convince myself that I still remember how to make music because <laughs> I'm just like, cause you do, I do have <laughs> that like imposter syndrome thing yeah. that kicks in, but I think that's healthy. I think that that's, I think that's just your nerves kind of, um, you know, I remember I was, I watched a thing where Bill Hader, who I'm a huge fan of, um, was talking about how he had terrible, like crippling anxiety and he was on Saturday night live and, mm-hmm. And they were saying, well, how did you overcome that? And he said, I just personified it. I just looked at it like it was a little person. And I, when it showed up, I'd be like, oh, there it is. 
and it, and he would acknowledge it and then he would just and it kind of like took the legs out from under it it like kind of took away the power of it a little bit and i've actually i think i read that same interview actually yeah and i found it very interesting i thought that was really smart i mean and i think mm-hmm. a lot of people it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't matter what line of work you're in could be creative could be not creative um you know i think a lot of people deal with that and deal with the imposter syndrome or just feeling like they're not good enough um and it's just you know at the end of the day like it's a very real it, and it has very real ramifications but it's also like you can overcome it and just say i'm allowed to be here i can do this work and show up and do it you know and i was gonna say on the other end of the spectrum i am a person who would say like oh you're a legend so why wouldn't you <laughs> why couldn't you but i think it's i think that it's refreshing like every year i watch the the um the Hollywood Reporter does their little like uh, Grammy or not Golden Globes roundtable, and they yeah. always slap together all the all the composers and they let them talk. And it's it's awesome because um, a lot of them are very candid and they say things like, "Yeah, you know, I got hired to score Big Movie X, and I spent the first I had three months. I spent the first month procrastinating. I spent the second <laughs> month completely freaking out, and then I spent the third month doing the work." and that was really refreshing because I feel like it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how big you are. Anybody can get it. Anybody can have that moment of like, shit, what am I supposed to do? And yeah, I think perhaps maybe everyone on earth has that feeling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's really refreshing because um, I think consistently as we've talked to people throughout our, our, our show and things like that has been a consistent thing is that, the imposter syndrome like the holy shit why me am i good enough mm-hmm. can i do this is it even possible why are you even talking to me about this like and then just the work the the every day sitting down doing a thing every single day and committing to it um has been a consistent thing from anyone that has been successful you know we've interviewed you know lots of people that are maybe even born into greatness sure. if sure. you will and it's the same thing it's like man, why am I here? Why'd you choose me? You know, you know, those kind of anxieties and it's very humanizing. Um, and especially to hear that. And I like, and that's why I like those kind of interviews that you're talking about behind the scenes things. Um, because it's, it's very insightful and, and makes you, makes you realize that no matter what you do, they're just people. They're just at the end of the day, they're regular people. And it doesn't matter if they're Hans Zimmerman or whoever it is, it's they're just a person and they're like, they go through their particular, you know, shortfalls and anxieties about a project. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's funny. Cause like I, um, I guess it's a couple of years ago now I was in, I was in Los Angeles and JP from Lamatos just happened to be there. Awesome. And so we kind of connected on, uh, I think it was through Instagram. And he was like, hey, I'm going to see, uh, there's a 35 millimeter print of They Live. I think he was in LA because he's a DP and um, that's his day job, I guess. And so he shoots films all the time. He's really good at it. And um, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, he was like, yeah, I'm out here. We're like coloring a film or doing something. And so he's like, I'm, but I'm going, I have tickets. He's like, I have an extra ticket. If you want to go to see, they live at the Egyptian. I was like, well, yeah, sure. Yeah. So I like met up with him and it was the first time he and I had met in person. And so we hung out 
And what was awesome about it was Alan Howarth was there and like performed music before the the film. And so he got up there and he just basically talked a little bit about his work with John Carpenter. And then he performed like this kind of super montage of music uh, that, that he had written. And it was awesome. But it was like he's this kind of older guy now. Um, and it was very it was very clear that he was just up there sort of being an awesome dude, you know, like just basking in the glory of all the stuff that he had done. And I'm sure that it was a little nerve wracking, like standing up there in front of all these people at the Egyptian. Um, and it was a packed house. And then afterwards, he sat at a table and he, you know, signed autographs and sold copies of whatever it is he was selling. And I don't know, it was kind of like this weird. It was kind of a, is a, is a cool thing. It was like a cool thing to see this kind of person that is much revered in the flesh and they're just doing, you know, what it is that they do. And I don't know, it was a really, it was a really cool experience, but it also just kind of reinforced that idea that we're talking about of like, you know, it, people are people. They're just trying to do cool stuff and try to try to just, you know, have fun with it, I guess. Um, sometimes it's not perfect. Sometimes it's really scary. But at the end of the day, like you can come through the other side and say, well, it was a really cool experience, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm sure performing music at the Egyptian theater is awesome. You know, like, um, and, and in a lot of ways, I remember, you know, it's like the first time I ever went to, uh, PAX in Seattle. Um, I remember walking around the floor, I was invited out there, I was working on a video game at the time and I went out there and I had never been to a game convention. I'd never really been to any convention and there's like 30,000 kids there. And I remember I put on my headphones and I was walking around listening to music and it was like 30,000 people and they were in their element and it was really beautiful. It was like, I don't care. I mean, there's kids there, you know, that are there with their mom and they're there because they're avid tabletop like card gamers. Right. And you look at that and I think culture or society would look at that and say, that's really nerdy. But I looked at it and I was like, there's something really beautiful about that. I mean, it's like the kid is in his element. He's like super pumped to be there with his buddies and doing what they're doing. And I thought it was really cool. And I don't know, for me, like that's the kind of stuff that I really, really look for in any kind of medium. Like whenever I'm working, I'm always like, it doesn't matter how bad it is or how good it is. At the end of the day, like you want to come away with it and say that was a really awesome experience. I think that's a really good, a poignant thing to, to point out, I guess. It's, you know, you think about some of these people that we admire now, when they're doing it, they're not, known they're not admired they might even be scoffed at you look at like john carpenter about how like especially in the synthwave scene he's revered as a godfather of of an entire genre of music but he wasn't even known or even thought of for the music that he was doing at the time it was just sort of an afterthought i think like just an aspect of what he did for his films and now to be so heavily regarded you know it's interesting how you know, time passes and you become important or it hits or it strikes a chord. You just never know when people um, connect with what you do. Sure. And so it's got to be, you know, good feeling. I, what I like about the synthwave scene is um, I, I think obviously like people really connect with what you're doing right now in the here and now. And they're very mm-hmm. interactive and they're very appreciative 
and you don't have to wait 30 years to get sort of this you know uh, veneration um that some people have to wait you know like you did a thing in the for a five-year period of time and no one cared and then 30 years mm-hmm. year later it's really important people are like here and now really into what you're doing and appreciate it i think hopefully for what you're trying to do yeah i think i mean i i guarantee you, i don't i don't think john carpenter scored his films and thought hey you know when i'm at the when i'm like in 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 30 years time i'm going to be touring with a band because people are so into my music um you know i think that that had to have been like a nice sort of icing on the cake for him and i think it just speaks into the idea that like you can't you can't really know you can't know what people are going to react to and why you can't know how a specific project is going to speak to somebody and so you just have to kind of put your head down and just keep shouldering through you know and doing the stuff and and really trusting in what you're doing um and then hopefully you know in my case i'm i feel like i'm extremely lucky you know i look at it and i go i I just have a lot of gratitude that there are people out there that responded and were into what i did um i don't think it's i don't i don't have there's no metric for it you know i don't look at it and go well i did this and i did this and then this happened i just i'm like i don't know (laughs) like it just I just made music and people were into it. So that's cool. I love like the sort of like off the shoulder sort of modesty that you have. Like you're clearly very talented and you are able to capture a very particular kind of mood that others can't. And so I, I just, I love that. Um, Let's talk about the new album. We've, we've had a lot of space for a lot of other things. You've just released an album. Um, I know that I got it on vinyl. I got it on vinyl. Okay, so both of us. <laughs> we, we, we both got it on vinyl. Uh, that That's our format of choice, obviously. Cool. Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. Let's give some room for the new album. How did um, you talk about like how you need to have a theme or, or a concept or something to create an album? What was the genesis of the new album? I think... So in the I, I think in terms of writing the music, it was really stumbling into this idea of how I could make the computer itself speak. Um, I found uh, some software that basically let me type words phonetically into it and then funnel MIDI through it, and it would sing whatever I typed in tune to the MIDI. Um, and I guess for people out there that don't understand what MIDI is, you know, it's essentially just playing notes into a computer with a keyboard and then it takes that musical information data and then spits it out through the software. So based on the, the pitch of what I was playing and the rhythm of what I was playing, it would sing it out and uh, accordingly. And as soon as I kind of stumbled into that, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. It's not a vocoder. You know, I'm not singing into a microphone and playing the keys. The computer itself is actually speaking. It's a speech synthesis. And once I kind of, had that I thought okay well now this is new it's different I haven't ever done this before so what do I want to say and then that was really intimidating because I was like oh I don't write lyrics I don't you know it's just not something I really do um, the times that I've collaborated with uh, singers like the records I've done with Jasmine you know she comes to the table and does all that I don't um, I don't ever 
write any any words. So at the time, I was thinking a lot about just this general concept of how we're very, for lack of a better word, addicted to technology. Um, and in a lot of ways, we're addicted to technology because these huge companies create technology for us to sort of make our lives better, I guess. But in the process, we kind of are hooked on it. Um, and we, and I think in a lot of ways, like not, we're not even really uh, in tune to the fact that that's happening. And there's a really great quote about how, uh, you know, if you don't, if you're using a product and it's free, then you are the product, you know? Um, yes. Wow. And I think, I think that that's kind of something I think a lot of people maybe are not keyed into that are, you know, using things like Facebook and obviously Facebook is this kind of hotbed, a hot topic right now with um, the election and everything else. And I think that what's, what became really fascinating to me was how things like Twitter and Instagram, these things function on algorithms and those algorithms, you know, I know, I don't know anybody that doesn't say like, Oh, you know, I was, I was talking about this with my friend and then I'm scrolling through Instagram and all of a sudden it's like, there's an ad for that thing I was talking about. So clearly Instagram is listening to me. And, you know, there's a lot of research that backs up the, the concept that Instagram is in fact not listening to you, but the algorithms that they use are so, um, so high tech and so attuned to you, the user, that it predicts those things. And so it, it's, and it's so magical the way that it works that we look at it and go, well, there has to be something nefarious going on. And it's like, while we kind of as a society like collectively shrug our shoulders about it, it is maybe a little nefarious, you know? Mm -hmm. And so Skynet. I thought, Sky Shit, I was <laughs> exactly. going to say Skynet. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about it is I think as a person, like, again, going back to the eighties, like as a person who grew up in the eighties, like the future sort of dystopia that we were promised in a lot of those eighties movies showed up in the form of something like Facebook. You know, it's not, it isn't this like, you know, self-aware, uh, you know, sentient network that sends machines after us. It's just a, you know, almost or probably sentient, you know, network of social media um, content management. And almost like we're, we're, all, <laughs> yeah. we are, we're our own worst enemy. Well, and if anything, it's probably more aligned to something like the Matrix, you know, the idea that we're all sort of plugged into this network and we're being fed things that, you know, the network thinks we want. And I think that, you know, that was kind of the jumping off point for me thematically as I kept thinking about the fact that, and the other thing that was happening also was over time, uh, I keep getting involved in projects or what really kicked it off for me was this, this really brilliant filmmaker, made this short film uh, that was about the protests that were going on in Hong Kong. And he licensed a piece of music from me to use uh, in his video. Uh, it was a song that I had written for the menu screen for, menu screen for a, a game called Overpass. And it's used really, really brilliantly in the film. He, I loved what he did. It was great. But it was also this kind of like weird wake-up call because it's like, oh, the music that I make that's dystopian is now the actual soundtrack to actual dystopia. And that was really sobering, I guess. And so I kind of came away from that and thought, 
all right, I think what I want to say when I sit down and make another record is I want to speak into that. And the way I want to do it is I want to make a record that's a little bit simple. Um, you know, I don't want the thing to be too overly complex. Um, I want all the songs to be pretty dancey. You know, you could dance to them. But I want all of the thematic stuff, everything that's being spoken, I want it to be sinister. Um, and so I made a record that's really an album about, uh, you know, it's speech synthesis, singing about longing and but it's longing for you and your data. And so I wanted it to be this kind of, you know, you can listen to it once and kind of nod your head and be like, okay, you know, this is cool. It's dancey. It's whatever. And then you can listen to it again and like read the lyrics, um, which you got, if you guys with the vinyl, you'll, you'll have all the lyrics. And so when you read the lyrics, it's kind of like all the songs are really about like, you know, this, the computer is saying, I need you. Um, and not in a good way. Um, and so yeah that was kind of that was the jumping off point it was just and uh data airlines and i've had a really good relationship i had three eps with them they're based in uh, france and um you know the eps were kind of loosely around william gibson and the neuromancer trilogy mm -hmm. and i felt like i wanted to like do a full length with them um because i had a great relationship with them and I just I wanted to do something that was still thematically like within that world, but I definitely wanted to do something that was like a, maybe a little heavier um, thematically. And so is this is this album like a, a number four within your within that concept to those three EPs or I don't know. Did... I, I didn't really think that far ahead as far as <laughs> I think it's its own thing. I think that um, it's. I think that for right now, it's the thing that I just needed to to say. It's it's also kind of interesting because, in terms of you know the records I put out, um, you know, I put out a record called Breaking News, uh, and I made Breaking News right after the 2016 election, and it just seemed like the right time to dive back into the sort of Charles Park horror f film, uh, you know, homage records that I I made, and do another one in that vein. And breaking news, you know, as far as the title, was really about this whole concept that we live in a very in a breaking news um, society. Like everything is literally every time you turn on the news, it's like breaking news. And but then I also like the other meaning of it too, like breaking news, you know. And it seemed like the culture that we're in is like very chaotic and very happenstance and very very fast. Like everything is happening so yeah. fast. And so I made that record at the at the beginning, and then I made this record at the end of this uh, you know season, uh, the last four years. And so I think in the beginning it was like, hey, something's broken, and then the record at the end is like, no, it's very broken, you know. And <laughs> the technology. I mean, we've. I mean, there's just been enough. It's funny because like the more I, when people ask about it, I talk about it. There's a certain element that makes me feel like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat a little bit. And I wish it was a little bit like that, but I think there's so much information out there that it's not, it's not a fantasy. You know, it's not really like a conspiracy fantasy. Like, you know, they spent a lot of, t a, a lot of people spent a lot of time dissecting Cambridge Analytica and talking about what that is and what right. they did and how they did it. And it's not, I wish it were more science fiction, but it's not, you know? And so when I made the record, I'm, you know, I'm not coming at it with this, intense political angle but i am coming at it with this intense kind of technologically like 
we are sort of cross the Rubicon and we do have to kind of be protective and proactively protective. Um, it's hard. I mean, I'm totally guilty of it too. You know, we, my phone literally tells me how much time I spend on it. And you'd think that would be enough to sort of shock you out of using it. And, but it's, you know, it's hard. It's not. Um, yeah. Cause we're, well, cause we're, I mean, we're tethered. Right. Cause you know, the technology that you're talking about, your phones or whatever, it becomes a literal extension of you, of your mind. And I found increasingly that I rely on it to keep track of my day, to keep track of what's going on. And, and sure. it is an external drive for my brain, mm -hmm. you know, cause you know, I think people are increasingly busy and need an external thing to, you know, an external validation Indeed. is more what sure. I find it to be. Well, and then and I think, you go back into the physiological aspect of it and you talk about dopamine and how, you know, you post something and it gets a like, you get another like. And what's fascinating about it is when, so when the record was finished, the record's been done for probably a couple of years now. And I guess, I guess a couple of years. That makes sense. Um, but, you know, it's, it takes a while. You have to go through all the rigors of, you know, dealing with the label and getting all the pieces in place. And then obviously we, coronavirus hit hit and everything was just slowed way down and one of the things that we wanted to do is uh we wanted to have a video made and so i have a friend saman kesh uh who's a great director he's iranian american lives in los angeles he and i collaborated on a, a short film he made called hit tv and he saman's thing is this whole kind of like lonely pop it's like this sad like he's obsessed with court. Uh, the first time we had a conversation on the phone, we were working on hit TV. He essentially was like, he was telling me about how one of his favorite songs is Whitney Houston's. I want to dance with somebody. And he was like, if you listen to the lyrics of, I want to dance with somebody, it is a sad song. It is incredibly upbeat, but it's a sad song. And so he had this whole, like the contrast of those things was like, of vital importance to him and was like this key to like creating art. And so when I, when we were coming together and saying, okay, how, who do we want to reach out to? I kind of thought, well, Saman, it has to be Saman, you know? And so we talked to Saman and then coronavirus hit and we couldn't really, you couldn't really produce a music video. And so he had to kind of reconfigure what he wanted to do. And him and Justin, the, the co-director basically s sat down and came up with this idea of, this guy talking to an AI chatbot, and when he pitched it to me, I thought, I don't think that sounds interesting. <laughs> and then he was like, No, no, no. The it's going to be sort of a flip of the trope of the AI is bad. In this case, the guy is bad, and the AI outs him as a bad person. And it asked the question. It asked yeah. questions about privacy. It asked questions about um, morality and ethics, and it kind of touches on all of these facets of modern culture that we're in. And, uh, you know, when he sent me the final video, I was like, this is really, really rough, <laughs> you know, in places. Um, cause Jeff, the guy in the video is, is not a good person. And, and the computer in, a, in the sense is asking him literally. And the song, the song that he's, that he's chose to write the, to do the film for is called algorithm. And he was saying, you know, 
he's essentially saying the, the computer gets to ask the question, you know, are you a good person? And I don't know. It was weird when they showed, uh, we, we linked up with, uh, some PR people to try to get the video out in the world and the PR and the directors themselves would show the video to like kind of focus group it. And it was really interesting. Women like really liked it. And guys were like, sort of like, I don't know. <laughs> Cause the AI is, you know, essentially outing him and outing his like pornography collection and like, you know, all the, the sort of terrible things that he had. Uh, on his computer and so yeah it was like it, it rubbed people differently you know based on and and i think in a lot of ways like a lot of people probably saw the video and thought this makes me uncomfortable and i think that's good um i, I, think, I would too yeah yeah i think i think it's i think it's good i think it's it's i have friends kind of all over the place in terms of you know the spectrum of politics or the spectrum of you know what their line of work is and i've you know, I had a lot of people reach out after it came out and, and talk to me about it. And they were all very fruitful conversations. You know, we had, it, there wasn't anybody that just reached out and said, oh, this video is bullshit. And, you know, you know, stick to music, like stay out of politics or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, Saman actually had people that messaged him on Instagram and were like incredibly threatening, um, which sucks because both he and Justin are both people of color. And, you know, that's obnoxious. Uh, I think that, but I think also like Saman's attitude going into it was like, fuck them, you know, we should, we should put it out there and be, you know, it's an acidic topic, but it needs to be said. We're not hating on white people or hating on men or hating on whatever. We're literally just putting this thing out there because we know that this kind of thing persists right now. And, and, um, and so I just, I, you know, I looked at it and I said, I, I trust them 100%. Like, I want them to go out and do. And what's fascinating is we put the video out and then the video, they made a video to promote a record about the evils of technology and the evils of technology crippled the, the video <laughs> because essentially we got shadow banned everywhere because there's screen, screen grabs. It's, I, I learned an awful lot about how social media works, but essentially, uh, Things like Twitter. I learned that on TikTok, if you say the word algorithm or print the word algorithm in your in your TikTok video, TikTok will shadow ban you. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I also learned that YouTube and the like. I believe Facebook does as well. They have skin sensors, so they scan the video for skin tone, and then based on that, they will suppress your video content um, if it deems that there's nudity in your video. Um, and so we were hit with that. And then also, um, obviously QAnon is super touchy right now. Um, and there was content in there pertaining to that and that got us flagged as well. So it was like, Craziness. The, yeah, the, the, um, and it, and what's crazy about it is all that stuff is automated. So there isn't somebody that's sitting there and discerning the message or looking at it and saying, no, this is actually like an artistic content. They're just saying, nope, this is bad, and it flags it. Like, it's a binary. It's a one or a zero, and it flags it and suppresses it. So, like, we put the video on YouTube, and, you know, Justin and Saman both have pretty intense, healthy Instagram followings, and they would post it, and people they would know would post it who also have lots of followers, and they wouldn't get any traction. Like, they'd get no likes. You know, it was, like, very – it was – they were they – were, everybody's kind of scratching their head and going, I don't understand why we're not getting more views – and then we came to find out that they were all being suppressed 
and not recommend they weren't in the recommend uh recommendation engine they weren't like everything was basically just getting locked down and so and we actually had a pretty good size uh electronic music magazine in france that was going to post it they were going to premiere it on their facebook page and they pulled out 15 minutes before the video was supposed to post um because they were like this is too edgy and wow yeah it was it was a lot it was like we were like wow this is like real like people are really afraid of this and you know i think i think we all kind of agreed like they should be afraid of it you know but it's also not like i mean i grew up in the 90s so i remember mtv banning nine inch nails videos you know right for and for good reason you know the videos had uh explicit nudity they had violence language you know those things they they were saying well we have to draw a line somewhere we have to we can't air this content our video got right up to the edge but it didn't go beyond i mean we didn't have actual nudity in it um we went really close but the content was very uncomfortable um and so it's this weird we were kind of confronted with this weird thing, you know, where, where like the, the message of the record was really, we, we experienced that because the video they made was too on the nose, you know? And um, you bring up such an interesting uh, thing. I was listening to the prophet Joe Bob Briggs mm -hmm. um, and he was talking about his love of physical media over streaming. Sure. And what he was saying is that it censorship and mm -hmm. censorship through, not through overt ban, but through uh, negligence. Basically, you just don't include it in a thing, and it no longer exists. And sort of the things of what you're talking about kind of really bring that to my brain, where, like, you release something into the world where people should view it, again, because you're, you're, you're going up to a certain lines. You're not necessarily crossing them but they're enough to flag algorithms that have no person behind them really making a judgment call, just going, oh, well, you meet the threshold and you're turned off. Mm -hmm. How yeah, do I mean, people access that? And, you know, censor censorship through, you know, just not choosing not to air it or have access to it. And, sure. and Joe Bob was talking about, you know, basically the reason why he doesn't really support streaming so much is because when you have a physical thing, you can go to a place, it's hard to censor it. Um, the important things that you need to have access to, thoughts, different ideas, different perspectives, you know, aren't subject to algorithms mm -hmm. when you go to a place and can get it. I, so, I absolutely agree. And I think that what's really, what's really interesting to me about the, the kind of era that we're living in right now is the fact that there's there's so much eye of the beholder kind of we're, we're kind of in this fog you know where it, it is there's there's so much kind of tamping down of the streaming content and determining like what what's acceptable right like what what's an acceptable thing to put out in the world um and and then who gets to make that decision you know i remember when apple I remember when all of the top streaming platforms basically pulled InfoWars off of their platforms. And don't get me wrong, personally, I was like, good. You know, I was not a fan of Alex Jones. I think he's crazy. But there was this That's commentary fair. that I think is worth exploring, which is, you know, essentially you're allowing these big corporations who are not regulated 
to determine what content is acceptable. And so you, you are crossing an interesting threshold where you do start to kind of fall into this Orwellian territory of, you know, quote unquote thought crime, you know, of like what's, what's acceptable. I think they were, they were shielded a little bit because, uh, you know, Jones was being sued at the time by all the families of Sandy Hook and they had, I think they had every, every, I think the impetus was there. Like they needed to get rid of him because he was saying a lot of really hateful, awful things. But it did kind of, it did kind of open the door for a, a, a difficult conversation. And I totally agree. I mean, I think that we live in an era where everything's digital. You know, like I can listen to podcasts. I can get all of my films. I can get all of my, you know, and it's, I have probably, you know, I have a ton of vinyl. I have a ton of CDs. I don't really listen to the CDs anymore. They're just kind of up on a shelf on the wall. They're like furniture at this point. <laughs> um, because I stream everything, you know? Right. It's like I'm not going to reach for it. I, I still listen to vinyl because I love vinyl. Um, I recently kind of started buying VHS stuff again. Um, and actually, I found this amazing TV-VCR combo thing that looked like it was straight off of Mother from Alien. Like, it was like this great kind of aesthetic i really loved it and i bought it i was going to put it in the studio and the guy shipped it and it broke during shipment oh, i was really bummed Fuck. i was like so bummed out and um but it kind of I had this kind of moment where i was like man this stuff is not around anymore you know like you're hard pressed to find a crt you know screen with a vcr attached to it um absolutely and I remember like, you know, growing up, it was like that stuff was just totally ubiquitous. And I kind of popped into a, a Goodwill and I was talking to my buddy, Joey, who he and I have collaborated tons of times on films and, and things. And he was like, well, he, he told me, he was like, you're not going to find a, a TV in a Goodwill because Goodwill doesn't accept CRTs anymore. And I was like, what? And it just like blew my mind. And I was like, and I kind of thought I had this realization, like, man, we're, we're probably like 10 years out from that stuff just not existing anymore, you know? Um, and there was part of me that was like really bummed about that. Cause what was great about VHS tapes is it's a physical thing. It's like a tangible, you have to rewind it every time you play it and rewind it. Like the tape gets a little bit, you know, there's like a generational thing that happens like a fatigue to the physical tape. Right. And so, be yeah, you rewind. Yeah. You, you get kind of the warble. Don't be kind. <laughs> well, I mean, it's vinyl's the same way, you know, you get surface noise when you listen to a record. And I think that that stuff is really awesome because what it is, is it's the, the work that you've done. Um, it's kind of the inverse of like the Brian Wilson argument, you know, like Brian Wilson famously like put all his records out of mono because he was like, I can't trust that everyone's going to have my setup. And so he was neurotically like, I can't, I can't put it out in stereo because I don't know how they're going to listen to it. And, and I can't stand the idea that someone's listening to it wrong. And I love the idea that you can put something in on a physical format and that the thing will degrade over time. You know, those records will exist and you put them in the sleeves and you kind of take care of them and you leave them up on the shelf. They should exist for a long time. I have tons of records that belong to my parents and it's great because each me too, actually. Yeah. Each, but each record like still, contains kind of the history of where it's at you know um i was listening to there's a oddly enough it's like an interview with miley cyrus recently because she's got like a new record out or something and she had had some kind of vocal cord surgery but she was talking about the fact that like 
your voice changes over time. It changes, gets deeper, gets a little raspier because it kind of where you've been and what you've done is, is on it, you know, like it kind of picks up grit. And, um, I think that's, what's great about that physical medium. You know, like I, when I started getting these VHS tapes in the mail, I got, uh, you know, I, somebody, I found somebody that had like the original alien and aliens, like the originals, uh, CBS box, like sleeves and, they came, they showed up and like they're kind of beat up and i was like this is perfect this is awesome like this is exactly what i want like i want i want the grit of like this wherever this has been who knows you know and um but it's lived a long life you know cuz these movies came out a long time ago and but it's still kicking you know and i'm sure that when i play when i put those tapes in and watch them they're going to have all of the kind of wrinkles and stretched out quality, like all of the sort of nice marble uh, is going to be baked into it in a way that is awesome. You know, it's part of the experience. Oh, I was going to say, you stop right now. Okay. I'm not because I have to say some shit. (laughs) Oh, say some shit. I've got like 20 things to say since we've been going here. It's just like, you are in this situation. You have a VHS tape. You have the one thing that is like the holy grail item mm-hmm. that I want in my collection. Like you have 8888 on VHS. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like you have the ultimate thing. And that is, I am so upset with myself for not getting that. I remember seeing that originally and uh-huh. I was like, all right. Uh, maybe I better wait till payday, which was like the next day. And on the next day, I missed out on it. That was, it's funny because it was such a long time ago. And I remember uh, Steve Jenkins, who was the head of Telefuture. He was like, I really think you should put it out on VHS. And I thought, what? I was like very confused because <laughs> I was like, I don't know. It's a, it's a record. And, um, but we, you know, uh, Joey, who I was just talking about, he and I sat down. Joey Chicolin is the director of 8888, the short film, which I scored. He came to me and wanted to license some music for the film. And that's how we first met. And then he said, would you want to score it? And I was like, I had never scored anything. I said, sure, let's do it. And I just kept watching the thing over and over and over again as I'm working on it. And um, he was kind of, I'd scored it. And it was kind of had this ambient kind of score. And then he wanted a track for the end credits. And I was, at the time, I was like up in East Tennessee. I was like up in the mountains. And I woke up one morning before everybody else was awake. And I came downstairs and I was on my laptop. And I just kind of hammered out what was the loose kind of structure of uh, Glowing Light of Promise, which is the first track on 88. And I came back and I remember I like rendered it out and I sent it to him and he said, this is, this is it. This is the end credits of the movie. And so I finished the song and then another one happened and then another one and another. And it just kept like the songs just kept kind of coming out of me. Cause I think I just lived in that film for so long that I kept thinking about, okay, what happens after the film ends? And so the record is really just like a sister. And what's funny is like, uh, Sean, the writer and Joey wrote a feature version of it to kind of pitch it and it was nothing like what I had envisioned (laughs) uh, when I made the record because in my mind I was thinking it would be sort of like the the actress Rachel um, her character Val essentially becoming sort of Ripley-esque 
and fighting off this alien invader, but on a small kind of setting. So think like, think like Ripley versus the alien on the set of Evil Dead Two. You know, that's what I kind of there envisioned. And um, I'm with that. Yeah, they they just they had gone in a completely different direction. But I think like, um, you know, the the record kind of came together. And so Joey and I sat down when Steve was like, we should do a VHS, and we we're like, well, how do you want to do that? You know, it's like a half hour record. And so we thought what would be great is we we have like an intro graphic and then credits and the credits roll and then it's just static for the entire record. So you could put it in your VCR and watch it and it get it kind of starts and then it just plays the music, the the album. And um I thought it was really cool. And it was like and people people still come up to me and like are, are like, it's like the, the, it's like the little gold idol in the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark for people. It's like they're trying. For sure. It's mine. I, Oh, I'm so mad at myself. (laughs) I'm so mad at myself for not getting that. It's kind of this weird ultimate Easter egg of my discography, but it's, yeah, it's, it was a cool thing to do and kudos to Steve for like dreaming that up and it's just ridiculous. But yeah, I will say I own more copies of, 8888 on vinyl than any other record i own all right which is five it's five funny. different yeah, versions it's, it's funny because the, yeah there have been a lot of um there have been a lot of editions um and i was and the thing is like a couple years ago um i had done a, a record with electric dreams records and brian over there and, and he's yeah. awesome i love him and, and if anything if somebody embodies all the things that were great about Steve and tell the future back in the day when all this stuff started, I think Brian really gets that. He like, he's re he's a collector and he just wants to put out good stuff. And so he Fun and were... story. Kyle's friends with Brian. So oh, okay. it's cool. Boy. Um, but yeah, so we, <laughs> he, you know, he kind of approached me and I had actually just written it's kind of a funny story. Like I sat down one night and I was watching the Hitcher, the original Hitcher with Rutger Hauer and, um, and see Thomas Howell. I love that movie. And it's just so weird and sadistic. And I'm sitting there and I'm like watching it. And, uh, I just started writing all this stuff while I was watching it. Like just coming up with like little ideas with my, cause I have my laptop out and it was just, I guess it was just like the epitome of lazy. I'm like watching the Hitcher and like making some music. And, um, I just came up with all these ideas and they were in a folder that was literally labeled the hitcher because I didn't have a name for it. And, um, I sent him the tracks and that became shadow circuit. And we kind of worked and went back and forth on like putting out something together. And then he was like, you know, I'd love to do something else. Like, what would you want to do? And I was like, you know, a lot, uh, I get a lot of emails from people that want to get a reissue of 88. And I was like, you know, I think it would mean it would mean a lot to me. It would mean a lot to a lot of people if you could do that, and that's where that whole thing came from. And um, it was great. I mean, I was super pumped that he did it. I thought it turned out awesome. Um, it looked great. Um, you know, he and I will definitely work again together. Um, he's a good dude. It's funny how many times in the interviews that we do, Brian comes up. <laughs> I mean, it's I feel like it's natural. Yeah. It's funny because we, he and I don't really know each other. He, I, I was coming through Chicago on tour and he was supposed to come to the show and then something happened. He couldn't make it. And so we ended up getting to meet in person. Um, 
It's eight. totally a Brian thing because he was here in Minneapolis and I didn't get to meet <laughs> up with him the last time he was here. I mean, but but like I said, like he's uh, he's just really really. Um, I think that the thing about being a musician and dealing with labels, it can get very arduous very fast. Um, it can be there's oftentimes a lot of hurdles. You might not see eye to eye. Plus, when you're working on a, with a label, you do, and you do at times have to re- kind of relinquish some creative control because it's a collaborative effort to like put the product, put the record out. And with Brian, um, it's really painless, and he, uh, he's got to be the the fastest email responder I've ever met in my life. He always like emails me back immediately, um, and so. It's just, I don't know, it's just in a, in a sea of, like, weird, flaky people. It's nice to meet somebody who's not. <laughs> so I think True. that, um, yeah, it was, it's was it been good. And I, I, you know, I had a great experience putting out Shadow Circuit, and I really like the stuff that he's doing. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll work together again. That's very exciting because, number one, I really like what Brian does. Yeah. He puts out hot stuff. And the fact that Dinatron masters most of the stuff yeah all of it specifically for vinyl which i love and i have to say like shadow circuit is my favorite album really wow my fucking favorite my favorite and the fact that he chose to do that on black vinyl Mm -hmm. just plain black in 45 rpm is just that really fucking speaks to me because those are (laughs) all the things that i like it was a cool things that i fucking like it was a cool project like um like i said like it was it's not really inspired by the hitcher, but I was like watching the hitcher when a lot of those ideas kind of were put down. And then um, when it came time to like put together the artwork, I was working with uh, Casper Newbolt, who is has designed the vast majority of the records I put out. Um, he's a graphic designer who's based in Berlin now, and um, he he and I basically sat down and we talked. I sent him the record and he listened to it and we talked about it. And I said, you know, I don't really. I always, when I work with him, I just sort of trust him to do whatever because I'm not a graphic designer. So my attitude towards it is very pragmatic. I'm like, if I were a graphic designer, I would just do it, but I'm not. And so I like, but I also like collaborating with Casper because he, he's going to come to the table and do something and I trust him to do it. And I, I just, I feel like it's always going to be interesting. Um, and he, I met him through, uh, my friends, the Proto Men. There's a band called the Proto Men. About uh, it's a Mega Man yes. themed band. Uh, so I I basically came up with them from school and lived with them, and then I've toured with them a bunch of times. They're just old old friends. They're awesome. And so we all started. He does all of their art, artwork as well. And um, we we kind of came together. And I, I just told Casper. I said, I don't know, but the the thing I keep thinking about is that somehow this thing has a sports theme. And I kept thinking about it in the in terms of like rollerball. I kept thinking like like the original rollerball with James Caan. And I was like, I okay. really yep. I really want it to be like this fantasy sports, like some kind of fantasy sport. And then Shadow Circuit, the title came along and it was like, and that just in my mind conjured this idea. Because it could be like circuitry like a computer, but it could also be like Shadow Circuit, like a circuit in a as like a distance or a measure yeah and um and so yeah he came back with the artwork with the giant like this like ball thing being thrown and these people and it was perfect and then he had it's probably my favorite record as far as his work with the type like i feel like the typeface that he designed for for the word shadow circuit is really really great um 
feel like I should probably put that on a shirt at some point, but I just haven't because I'm stupid. But like, but I think that um, I'm not. I'm very, very much not merch minded. Um, but yeah, it was like a, it was a really cool thing. I thought the packaging and everything would just look fantastic. And and again, kudos to Brian for just being open enough to be like, sure, go for it. Fuck, I love that album. I love it. <laughs> Good it's a good you. one. It, it was a lot of fun to make. I really enjoyed but it. I d- just have to say, like, as far as 8888 goes, mm. like, I own the original pressing on vinyl. I own the ultimate version pressing on vinyl that Brian redid. Uh-huh. I own the standard version that he did. I have the test pressing <laughs> nice. that, that he did. And I have the only one, a one out of one error pressing that has side A on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <that album. laughs> Wow. Okay. That's a lot. Like, I fucking love that album. <laughs> and if only I had it on VHS as well, then I, then so I you're, would call it you're technically and missing and two. You're technically missing two, though. I hate to break it to you. So there was a, there was a cassette tape that Telefuture did back in the day that was like a pink cassette. Um, of course it would be pink. <laughs> and those are long gone. Um, but... Yeah, that was like the only because we we did vinyl originally, and then Steve was like, I think it'd be really cool to do like a cas- a cassette tape pressing of it, and he did. Uh, I don't remember how many he did. I have I probably have one like laying around somewhere, but he. Yeah, that was really that was I think that was like our first kind of foray into tapes. Maybe I can't remember. He used to he was really up on tapes, and I I remember at the time thinking like I didn't know the tapes were really coming back or like being a thing anymore. And so I want to say that was the second tape I did with Telefuture because we did a, we did an EP called Manifold and I want to say that was on cassette. Um, and that was, I think that was the first one we did. It's surprising because you, you seem to be right on the, right on the edge with formats that are popular. So it's kind of funny that like you're questioning like cassettes, really cassettes, is that a thing? Is that a thing that we should be doing? Does anyone have cassettes? Well, the whole thing you said about VHS, I mm-hmm. just thought was crazy because <laughs> you have your own one. Yeah, well, I think it's, yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it's all, it all comes down to like, we haven't really, um, I've never been uh, releasing CDs. I mean, it's not, it's never been on my radar. I've never looked at it and gone, I really want to, and I get emails from time to time with people like, you're going to put stuff on CD. And I'm like, nah, I just don't see a reason to, you know? It's this sort of digital. It's the least desirable thing I feel. Well, right and I, I honestly think CDs are on the way out. Like I think that there's nothing really cool about CDs as a physical product. I also feel like CDs are really just like mini. They're like they're basically like thumbnail versions of the artwork for vinyl. So it's not really exciting. I think from a graphic design standpoint, and it's not as interesting because it's not a it's a laser. So it's not really like there's no surface noise. It's just a perfect version of the record, you know? And, um, so to me, there was never any allure to that. I just kind of shy away from it. It's going to come back. You know, it is. And not just like the, the jewel cases, but like the, remember when CDs first came out and they came out in those giant, Oh, the long box, like the PS one long boxes. Yeah. 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 I guarantee that that's also going to come back because mini discs are a thing. Like, like anytime like time slaves or in the, you know those record labels put out something on mini disc, 
yeah. they instantly sell out. Yeah, I've, I, yeah, mini disc. I, I feel like I get behind mini disc only because as a kid, I was really into the movie Last Action Hero, and in that movie, I remember there was this big product placement where, when Arnold's driving around shooting at people in his like convertible, he's like pumping like mini discs into his like little portable mini disc player that he had in the front seat. And he's like listening to like ACDC or something ridiculous. And like, I remember as a kid thinking like, those are so cool. Cause they're like little tiny cartridges, you know? Yeah. And so there was something, it was almost like a game boy, you know, it was like this kind of really cool little apparatus. And, um, yeah, I could get behind some mini discs, but I don't know about CDs. I don't know if they're I like it. a floppy disk, but yeah. only smaller, exactly, and, and yeah. cooler. But the fu- the weird thing about it was like everywhere but here in America, you could actually go to a store and buy an album on mini disc. Yeah, like, here in America, it was like it just never took off. Mini discs, make your own. You, we aren't giving you anything that's already pre made on it. Or the mini disc too. industry bet big on Last Action Hero, and it just didn't pan out. Yeah. Well, it ended up being huge when I worked in radio. That's what we used to record everything. Was on I could see that. that. I could see that's that. That's how. That's how we did. He did our interview. That's also really fucked up too. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Just like, the way it is. Here we're radio recording on mini disc. This is the thing we chose. We had, and I'm so. <laughs> I'm wondering if they still have. They had the huge, like actual console cassette, like, cause mini disc players, mm-hmm. and I so wanted them and i wonder if they they can't be still using them because it, it, it would make no sense go back and on eBay. buy it it's yeah. unused right now yeah. dude if you go back and see what a mini disc player is now my god i i have one kyle sold his along. i had the coolest one too i really regret selling it because it was yeah. fucking awesome i still but have I'm, i have a sony it's a portable and it's a recorder i had it when i was in college and i would walk around and record with it because it had I had this really great sort of binaural microphone that was with it. And so you could like record all these weird sounds and um, I have it, but the battery is like one of those long stick batteries. Gotcha. And and it's completely dead. And I've just never really gone out and tried to get a new one, I guess. Yeah. So I I have a, a Sony one. It's like the, um, it's like the size of a pop tart and it's the gray one. Um, like silver gray color and it, it still works just fine it's great it just takes some double a batteries and it's ready to rock um but i don't have i wish i had like the the stereo component mini disc player because they're so cool yeah so i i mean i yeah i mean i think that it's funny to think about how far a lot of that technology has come because i was just having this conversation the other day like i remember in college I'd started working on recording projects. We were doing everything in Pro Tools. And I remember I needed a hard drive. And so I kind of called my dad and I was like, I I need to buy a hard drive because I have to back everything up. And so at the time, I went to like a Circuit City or something and like bought this hard drive. And I remember it was 300 gigs and it was like a one-to-one ratio as far as price. So it was like $300 for 300 gigs, which is insane. Um, to think about and it was a big uh you know true hard drive and like we're not talking about solid state like the sucker spun up was noisy as hell it got like red hot um and i think it's kind of fascinating because now it's like i you know i work with uh tenderfoot tv in atlanta i score all of score all of their podcasts and um you know i'll go on the road with them pretty frequently and 
when I go out with them, you know, they're all recording everything with like Zoom recorders. Um, I use a mix pre for my field recording stuff. And I mean, I just pop a little micro SD card that's the size of my pinky fingernail, you know, that's like two terabytes or something ridiculous. And, you know, I can, I can go out there and I can plug a power brick into it and I can literally record for hours. And it's just amazing to me. Um, you know, I guess it's just the hindsight of being an old person, but like I look (laughs) at it and I go, it's, it's just amazing to me how far everything has come. You know, I, I met a kid last year who makes all of his music with Oxy, an app on his phone. It's good music. He's awesome. Um, and, but he's, he makes the, makes the music with his phone, spits it out as a wave file, makes the artwork on his phone and then uploads it from his phone to SoundCloud. What? And it's just, and it's, it, it's yeah. And, and I had to download Oxy and like see it for myself. Cause I had to, I was like, I don't understand this. Like I just, but it's an extremely intuitive software. Um, you could make, you know, very full recordings with it. Um, and I mean, it, it'll, you can export music from it in a, in an Ableton live format. So it'll just spit it out into an Ableton session. Like it's just, it's inc- incredibly intuitive, but again, it's on your phone. You know, I remember getting our first kind of family computer in the nineties. It was a right. Dell. It showed up in a huge box. My Dude. dad set it up and it cooked my brain that we had a computer. You got a Dell. Got a Dell. My parents didn't no, I mean, get a computer until and, I moved and, out. I'm going to tell college. you my Dell predated that ad like that whole advertising campaign so this is like pre dude you're getting a dell i got a dell um yeah my first computer was an apple and you couldn't do shit on it back then in the (laughs) early 90s yeah and my brother thought he was going to be an architect so that's what he got but i was just like what can i do on this nothing yeah (laughs) and i mean it was kind of but it was cool it was like all of a sudden you had this weird window into this new technology and i was i was having this conversation recently with Data Airlines kind of published this little article about uh, specifically we were talking about music trackers because that's kind of how I started. I was using Impulse Tracker on a PC, which is a DOS program. And, uh, you know, I think there was a weird correlation between me as a kid learning how to play piano on an upright piano and sort of pulling the door up on the piano and looking at all the hammers and how they work to, you know, I have a mechanical keyboard in my in my studio and there is like a weird connection, you know, to me using the mechanical keyboard on the Dell computer and making music in a tracker and pressing the keys on a physical upright piano and, and hearing the hammers and the mechanics of it. Um, I think there was like this weird kind of common ground between those two things. And it was not a, it wasn't a hard leap for me as far as technology. Cause it was just like, I understand how the acoustics of a piano work. I understand how that music happens. The the hammer strikes the string, the string resonates. You play the music in time, you've made music. Um, but then when I was in middle school, you know, I had a computer and I'm downloading on my dial-up internet, uh, you know, square pusher songs, right? And I'm going, I don't understand how this music exists. I don't understand how this- square pusher today, by the way. Well, like, you know, it's extremely fast, um, sort of like, post i don't even know what you would call it i mean it's, i guess idm intelligent dance music but like the yes um you know it's, it's hyper fast programming you know stair rushes but he used predominantly acoustic sound sources so 
you know, he had a drum, a drum break, which it, at its core is a recording of an actual drummer um, and drum sounds and bass guitar playing incredibly fast and hyper edited. And I thought, okay, this is really, really fascinating to me. So how does this work? And so then I'm like, all right, I'm going to make these little micro samples. I'm going to try to work. And then through trackers, I've found chip music, you know, chip tune music. And I'm like, and that was a whole mind blowing experience for me too, because you're essentially looking at it and going, uh, these people have to make the music using the least amount of data because it has to fit on a game cartridge. And so you're talking about like literally a cycle of a wave that gets looped. And then the pitch information is used to like make the music. And it kind of taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about, um, you know, micro sampling. It taught me a lot about just that there were not limitations, I guess, or sometimes your limitations create weird opportunities to do something creative that you wouldn't normally do. Um, and just the general concept of, uh, sampling in general and, um, and just going for it, you know, just seeing what kind of weird stuff you could come up with. Um, I don't know. Me, me, go me. (laughs) Yeah, you go you. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to bring things around to a different angle. So my friend James is a huge fan of yours. I mean, I'm a huge fan of yours. He's an even bigger fan. And I asked him if he had some questions for you, because I know he would have been amped about it. So I have to ask. So first of all, he says, like, your work on Overpass is, like, severely, severely overlooked, which he loves and he thinks is great. But the main thing he wanted me to ask you is... um, what is, if there is any, what is the story of uh, Last Embrace on Wilderness? So Wilderness at, at its core is a record about grief. Um, at the time, I was dealing with the death of my mother. And so I started making music because she went through a period, a prolonged period of illness. And so when I started it, I was writing the music, kind of processing that. And then when she passed, I kind of took this long break and then I came back and I, and the music was, was really harder in a way to come back to. And so I had this idea to make a record where there's essentially two halves. The first half being a lot of the stuff I wrote before. And then the second half being the stuff that was sort of after, but really the concept was this two halves idea of, uh, you're essentially trying to recreate something that's lost through the memory of that thing and how memory is imperfect. Um, Because one of the things I realized during the process, the grieving process, was as soon as a person's gone, and I don't don't know if you guys have ever dealt with grief, but it's like, or anybody out there listening, but as soon as the person's gone, you're you're almost kind of like clinging on to the, the memories that you have in a way to try to sort of fulfill the weird like, shock of like what do i do now and i found that oftentimes the way i remember things were almost like overly romanticized so it wasn't really accurate it was just based on the way i remembered them and i wanted to make a record that sort of encapsulated that and the way i came up with it was the story of a brother trying to recreate his dead sister um and so 
he keeps rebuilding her as this machine and it keeps the machine keeps failing and then he finally succeeds and the sister outlives him because she's eternal she's a robot you know she exists forever and the second half of the record then is like this 400 year leap into the future and she's on her own and he's gone because he's physical being he dies and um last embrace was really just the part of this idea of like saying goodbye um you know saying saying goodbye and, and being able to i think be present in, in something that's really hard um and at the time that's what it was for me it was like you go through a lot of the emotions when you're dealing with someone who's dying and you're saying, I want to be present. Um, but you're also in shock and you don't know how to process anything, you know, it's just this murky, weird swamp and nothing makes any sense. And it was like that. I mean, like, you know, going through that process, I think the best advice I got, uh, dealing with grief was, you know, in a lot of ways, you're kind of looking, searching for an action step. You're looking for the next, like, what am I supposed to do now? In a lot of ways, there isn't anything. There is no step. You just sort of let yourself grieve and be sad. And that's the way it works. And, you know, um, hearing that advice actually was like a galvanizing thing for me to, as far as like going back to work on the record. Because I thought, no, it's okay. I can do this. And so, yeah, Wilderness uh, as a whole, is that's what it's about. Last Embrace is kind of a piece of that. Um, but that's largely... It's a long, long answer, <laughs> but, but that's largely. No, it's it perfect, about, yeah. actually. Yeah, I think if anyone was searching for a particular, you know, uh, meaning for something, I think you you very eloquently answered that. So it's it's crazy because like uh, I, that was one of the records. You know, when I was on tour, a lot of people came up to me and said, you know, Wilderness really meant a lot to me because of this thing that happened. And I've told other people before, but like I think that um, what was really great about that was in a way it sort of takes it away from me. Like it's not a, like when that happens, it almost kind of wipes away sort of the debris of that experience for me. And it, the ownership kind of becomes theirs. Like it's their their music now. Um, and it's cool. It's like you, like the, the whole thing about what I was saying with uh, Victor Wooten, you know, like um, how did you make people feel? Well, that person felt something and it helped them uh, process. and. To me, I don't think there's any higher. You're not going to give me a war, an award that feels that good, you know. Like I think that um, that's a really I've, I have immense gratitude for that. Yeah, that's uh, you know, I think that it shows in what you're doing because ultimately the things that connect with people versus someone that's looking for an accolade or searching for some sort of um, validation. They, sure. they feel different, mm -hmm. right? They, they, the person that searches for validation or, or a claim, it, it tends to be, you know, on the surface, really gratifying, but really beyond that, not really. And I think the fact that, you know, your music has touched people. And again, we kind of loop back around to like, as you've sort of described what synthwave means to you, it makes sense. Like, what can you make someone feel? music about feeling sure and so it's an interesting loop back around to everything and about how your approach is and it is the through line of what you do sure yeah 100 percent. i mean i wish 
I wish I had a better, <laughs> I wish I had like kind of a dumber answer for James. Like <laughs> just about, you know, I was about like, you know, I had a burrito. That might be the perfect one. <laughs> it's honestly perfect. You know, I don't know. I've yeah. been in interviews with people mm-hmm. in previous jobs and things like that where I've, I've been really into a, a song and I have a particular thing and I, I get the opportunity to ask the artist. Mm-hmm. And then the answer is, um, I don't, I don't know. I just wrote it. It was a thing. That's not, yeah. that's not at all a thing anyone wants to hear is I don't remember. That was one album ago. How do you not remember? <laughs> I mean, sometimes so, it happens. It's weird. I mean, there's definite times where the well's a little dry or just, you don't, you're not motivated or inspired and yeah, you just, I don't know, but that, that whole record was, uh, you know, it, it was a process. It was me. It was about me processing grief. Um, and music in a lot of ways, is very life-saving. It's a catharsis. Um, and that's what it was for me. It's awesome. I yeah. mean, it, it's the perfect it, answer. It's the perfect answer. Honestly, Kyle, do you have anything else? So you've kind of touched on a few things that I was thinking about asking you, um, you know, working with electric dream records, working with, um, data airlines, mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Uh, I there has there was I think there was something else that I wanted to ask about. Mm-hmm. Of course, now in my weird like incapacitating pain, <laughs> the amplification slash kind of whiskey fueled, you know, result of that that I. <laughs> I don't know if I can quite think of, of it. And I don't want to be like, oh, here's the thing I think of when we're done with the interview. Like, it's over. We totally missed it. That kind of thing. No, and also <laughs> I feel on the spot, too, because yeah. Eric just went to the bathroom. So it's like, <laughs> I'm here. I don't have my backup for that. Of course, I, it could always be edited out. I... um. It's kind of interesting. Like I think that the process of making music, kind of like what you were talking about, like you talk to people and you ask them maybe a specific question about, uh, you know, what a song means. And I think that part of the part of the hard, the hard part of of writing music is is really just the you know the motivation. Uh, there's one of the producers I work with at Tenderfoot and she's asked me before because I mean with Tenderfoot TV like we I think I've scored probably like eight I don't know how many it is a lot of podcasts and I remember in the beginning when they first came to me uh, about scoring I scored a podcast for them called Atlanta Monster and I think the the bid on that job was like they needed 10 songs and then by the time it was done I'd written like three and a half hours of music or something like that because I mean it's a podcast podcasts just need lots of music um, right you know, 10 episodes or something like that. And at the end, you know, uh, one of the producers on it, we were working on another show. She said, you know, do you ever worry that you're like run out of melodies or run out of ideas? And I don't, you know, I kind of laugh. I think it's definitely something that you do have to think about, but I think that, um, you know, because obviously everything has already been done. I mean, that's just the reality of it. There's just been so much music over so much time. But I think that what's cool about making music is that it's a, it's still an endless pursuit. Like it's still there's still 
so much out there that can be said. There's so many things out there that can be interpreted. And it makes me genuinely excited. You know, like the the kid I met uh, who's making music with his phone, Jacob, he, you know, he was sending me stuff and he's young. He's, he's just a kid, but he's making cool stuff. And kind of reminds me of the, what's the song? The LCD sound system song, um, Losing My Edge, right? And he sings in the song about how, you know, the kids are coming up. Um, and it's exactly it, you know, at the time that James Murphy wrote that song, he's an older guy and he's living in New York and he's making really cutting edge music, but he's also like contemplating his existence, you know, within, as a musician, within a sea of musicians. And I think that's kind of the place that I come to with that. It's, it can be daunting, but I don't really think about it too much. I'm just sort of like, I'm just going to let it happen. You know, I'm going to. I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Don't get me wrong. I get up every day, I make a little coffee, and I make music. And that's my job. And I love that. And that's a dream. And it's cool because I come and I sit down and I have a studio. It's not, not a huge studio, but it's full of synths. And I sit down and I look at all this stuff. And it's me essentially having a conversation with technology. And it's a collaborative process. I have a studio that's sort of by design set up to where everything's always on and ready to go. So, um, which I kind of, the, that's an, it's an, it's kind of a, uh, I don't know what you would call it. It's, it's sort of a setup, a workflow that I, I sort of lifted from, um, Vangelis, uh, you know, which is essentially everything's on all the time and at arm's reach so that any, I don't have to wait. Like there's no delay. The workflow is instantaneous and, um, you know, it's, it's just a very free form kind of thing. A lot of my music, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Like, I feel like a lot of my music is accidental. Like I'll sit down, I might stumble across a sound or, uh, maybe a piece of gear is, is influential to me in some way or, or kind of puts me in a certain mood. And then the thing comes out of that. I, one of the reasons I love scoring podcasts or scoring films is the collaboration with other people. And it is a true kind of artistic partnership. So they're sending me content, they're sending me segments or things or telling me about uh, what a show is going to be about. And I get to sit down and basically react to it. And then we sort of through a process work together to, to make a statement, you know, and um, it's cool. Like I, I'm, I'm very into it. Cause I think every prog, every project I work on where it's a collaborative thing, I'm learning, you know, I'm, I learned from bad experiences and good experiences alike. If I work with a producer who's like a total disaster to deal with, um, which <laughs> happens, um, I still come away from it thinking, I mean, it can be frustrating, but at the same time, I'm like, all right, now my job is to learn how to speak this guy's language. And it's like a problem solving, you know, it's an, it's an equation. And so I have to kind of figure it out. And I like that. I think it's motivating. Um, it motivates me as far as how, how to, how to, how to deal with that, how to deal with people, um, how to be useful to people I just don't get along with, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then also how do you make music through that? You know, I know a lot of, like it's very easy to get in a situation where you're having to be creative and you're completely shut down. And I've had that experience too, where I've worked with people that are just like sort of like creative vampires, you know, you deal with them and they just suck all of the energy out of you. And then you come back, you come away from the project and it's like, you can't work for a minute. You have to take a break because you're just so wrecked by that experience. 
um, creatively. So, it's, yeah, it's all it's all instrumental in the end because you're learning how to how to navigate those waters. Before being asked, did you ever think that you would run out of melodies or anything? Or did when that person asked you that, did you just like stop and think like, holy shit, I've never considered that before. <laughs> my brain just, just ruined everything. Yeah, my brain just goes blank. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, I've considered. I mean, I, I remember, you know, I lived in L.A. for a little while and I go to Amoeba Music in L.A., which is this great, huge record store which I think is now being relocated. So it's not in the same place anymore, which is a bummer. But um, I used to walk in and I'm one of those people where uh, musically, like if I listen to a song, I could listen to it once and probably hum you the melody. I probably couldn't sing any of the words back to you. I don't hear the, I hear the music of the words, but I don't hear the words. Um, and I have this thing where like, I may have had like in the back of my mind, all these records that I want to look for. And then I walk in the store and they see the size of the store and my brain just goes blank. You know? I was, you know what? I was just going to say something about that. Cause I've been to the Amoeba in LA and yeah. I've been to the Amoeba in San Francisco and yeah. I can't go into those places because it's just too much stuff. It's to overwhelming. I mean, I'll never, I won't leave with anything because I can't think of anything that I want yeah. when I'm in there. You literally just have to walk around and wander. I mean, I think it's, it, it's a bit like, the first time I sat in a professional studio, you know, I was in college and we would have to book studio time to do projects. And so as a, um, like underclassman, I guess I would book my time and it would usually be like two in the morning or something ridiculous. And so I'd go in the studio. I remember sitting there and it's like a, you know, multi-million dollar studio. And I'm like completely locked up mentally. I'm like, I don't even know where to begin. Um, you know, I understand in theory how all this stuff works, but I feel like my hands are kind of tied behind my back. Um, and I, you know, I make that commentary to a lot of people too. I'm like, you know, you could take me and sit me in uh, any artist's studio. Um, and I'm not going to make that artist's music um, because it's part of their experience. And also the space that they inhabit is sort of precious in a way. Um, and you do have to kind of have consideration for the fact that that process is something that's finely tuned over time through experience. And it's, you do need to be respectful of that. Um, but also there's not, it's not a, it's not a switch that you just turn on and off. It's just a thing that exists, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'm going to run out of melodies, <laughs> but I think that it's entirely possible to get to a point where you're just, your inspiration comes from different places, I guess. Dude, that would be like the, the huge pump your brakes things for me. If somebody asked me that, I'd be like, I never considered that before. And now I can't go on. Now I have no melodies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Be like, Thanks right. for ruining me. <laughs> <laughs> and so you were speaking of collaborative efforts before. Sure. Is there anything on the horizon perhaps for you drive? So funny you should it's a actually perfect thing to dovetail into to be honest because one of the things about you drive is like Jasmine and I have been talking a lot we've talked a lot about doing another record. And there's a part of me that feels apprehensive about writing new music because I just like love that first record so much that I don't even know where to begin. Um, and it's been, it's been a weird 
roadblock. Um, so I've been, I have like a folder in my, on my computer that has like a handful of ideas in it, but nothing, nothing's really been like, oh, this is it. This is the direction. And I haven't, I haven't really found it yet. So, and it's not one of those things where I'm like going to give up on it by any means, but I definitely, I have so much reverence, I think, for Jasmine, um, cause she's an amazing musician in her own right. Um, and so I think I just constantly have this, there's a part of me that's like just extremely precious about it. And so it just hasn't really hit me yet. Um, but it's in there. I'll find it. I stay hopeful. <laughs> it's funny because I feel like a lot of people don't really. I feel like people are are really big fans of what I do. Have known about U Drive, but I think a lot of people kind of slept on it, and it's weird. Like because I wasn't when we made the record, I really wasn't sure how people were going to receive it. And Jasmine, I remember, really had no idea because she's you know up until that point she'd featured on stuff that I'd done, but she had never really done anything that was just like a whole record of synth music. Um. And everyone that we know in Nashville, like putting the record out, uh, I remember when the record was like getting close, you know, we had mixes and I'd be out and about doing things and somebody who's a friend of mine, I'd run into them and they'd be like, oh yeah, Jasmine played me the record. And they're like, I really like it. I was kind of like, okay, cool. And like, I just, I feel like um, the record is like this weird totem for a time, you know, and a place and so I'm just incredibly careful, I guess is the right word. Um, but yeah, we've we've talked a lot about it. We've talked we've ha we've we've had a many emails about what the concept of it because the first record had a very concrete kind of idea where we were coming from, like what what we wanted to write about, and um, so hopefully hopefully we'll we'll make it happen. Yeah, I have to say I'm one of those people who are guilty of sleeping on it, and it's like when it first came out. I wasn't in a good place, and I, I only buy my music on vinyl. And yeah. I'm not saying that in like a totally hipster way, but <laughs> to say like that's the way I enjoy it because I can be more involved with it. Sure, yeah. I didn't get it right away, and then I remember somebody coming in and saying like copies of this are still available, and it blew my mind. I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me! Like I could still get this. Yeah. So it, instantaneously, I was like, okay, I'm doing it now. I'm gonna make sure I get it got it and i was like oh wow did i really make a mistake <laughs> it's it's a really um it's a really beautiful record and really because of jasmine like i think jasmine has this like an incredibly awesome brain like the way she thinks about songs she's a fantastic songwriter um but the way she kind of writes lyrics are just not like anything else and um, and when we wrote, when we put the music and the words together and she would start sending me stuff over, I never asked her, I, I would never go and say like, what's this song about? You know, like, because I feel like it's, that's her kind of journey. Like she's making, she's kind of putting that stuff together on her end. And we have this collaborative process where I would write music, send it over. She would write the words, sing the stuff. And then I would the songs in many cases would like change drastically because I would sort of then take the song and almost wrap it around her like a blanket, you know, like I was like, this is now I need to kind of make the song fit the vocal. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird precarious way to work, but I love it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I think um, 
Yeah, I, I'm always in awe. You know, when Jasmine and I worked on Wilderness together, she's on two songs on Wilderness. That was kind of when I realized, like, I really wanted to make a full record with her. But I remember she sent me the vocal for Hand in Hand. And I sat on the floor in my house and put this, like, laid the vocal over the track and just listened to it on the laptop speakers. And I was just, like, bawling my eyes out. Because she, we had a conversation about, like, what the record was. And she just knocked it out of the park, you know, lyrically. Like, I didn't say, like, oh, it has to be about this or it needs to be this. I think the song had the title. I think I want to say Hand in Hand was the name of the session for some reason. I, I could be wrong. But, um, yeah, she just, it was like she had just taken her words and adapted them to what I was going through. And it was amazing. And And that was kind of the moment where I was like, okay, we need to, whatever that is, like we need to stay on that and make, make something complete, you know, like a whole record together. And I was just super grateful for her, super grateful for, you know, who she is as a musician. Um, it's, it's like a huge benefit um, to have people like that around you and specifically female voices too. Like, um, you know, I've always been really lucky uh, working with, you know, just various people over, over my career who are amazing musicians. There's a lot of really awesome female synthwave musicians. Um, and it's just, it's, it's great. It's all, I feel, I feel like it's always, uh, amazing to, to get to hear like what's coming out and what those voices specifically have to say. So, so let me ask you, I mean, we've kind of skirted around this whole thing since mm -hmm. we've been talking is, do you follow the, the synthwave scene? It kind of sounds like you do. I mean, is there, are there artists that you're into that you like? Sure. I feel, um, it's interesting. Like I, I, I for years I was kind of like within the realm with the Telefuture people, you know. And when t with Telefuture, there were a lot of people on that label that were like kind of the OG, you know, like synthwave, uh, you know, like Betamax. Nick was part of that, and um, I've known him for a long time. Um, and we played, we actually played a couple festivals. We played um, Retro Future Fest together in London. Um, and which was super fun and putting me within synthwave as a, as a whole, like, uh, I'm a huge fan of everything that, uh, Mecha Mako, Mecha Mako is putting out. Um, yeah. And, uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, the stuff that Parallels is doing. Uh, I've always been a huge fan of Ogre. He's kind of like under the radar, but he's awesome. Um, and, Dallas Campbell's a big, I'm a big fan of him. Um, we are always kind of talking about gear. To get, he's a big gear person. So like we are constantly talking about new, n new gear acquisitions. Same with Ogre. He's a big, <laughs> uh, hardware guy. Um, so, uh, I'm trying to think you're putting me on the spot now and I'm going to like forget people. <laughs> feel horrible. Sorry. About it. I don't um, mean, I didn't mean to do that. Well, you know what? This is perfect because it also covers another thing that I wanted to ask about gear. Sure. So it's just like segue away. <laughs> yeah. What what gear do you prefer to work with? I mean, you said like when you're touring, you don't want to bring a laptop, and which you know, yeah, I I, I, I think... can't even believe because that's a lot of stuff to bring. 
there's a lot of things to go wrong. I mean, more things to go wrong than a laptop. There's stuff that's out there, though, that's way more... Like, there are things that are compact that are hardware. It's not a computer, and you can... You can do an awful lot with not a lot of equipment. Um, so it's not, I mean, on one hand, it is a lot of stuff. It's definitely more than a laptop. It's definitely a little bit more precarious to like lug a bunch of gear around on the road. But it's not like Tangerine Dream in the cathedral with like, you know, 500 synthesizers and mixers and tape machines and stuff. So it's, I think it's, for me, I don't get, I don't, I don't wander down the path of like analog versus digital um i don't get upset about it i feel like whatever works for the song um but i do own a lot of hardware synths um i'm a big fan of moog i think that um you know for me uh the mother 32 which is a semi-modular synthesizer was a big game changer for me as far as there's not a lot of synths i just connect with that i'm like i get it and i'm like this thing is just tailor-made for me. I really felt that with that uh, synth. Um, and that really was the doorway into modular synthesis for me, which is um, also something I'm really interested in. And, but I think, you know, I just kind of, I kind of move in the direction of things that suit the, how, who I am as a programmer and also the type of sound that I have. Um, that makes sense so i always kind of look for gear that's going to be very inspiring to me sonically i'm also you know it's very shallow but i am extremely touchy when it comes to the aesthetics of a synthesizer like i just can't use something that's just hideously designed um (laughs) it's just I i it's just a thing like i just feel i've had i mean and for some reason uh so many modern synths are just really ugly um i don't really understand why um, I don't know if it's like budget or what it is. Maybe but it's like trying to be cool and just really doing a terrible job. I think on some it. level that somebody that works for the synth company, you know, probably looks at some kind of focus group information or they just don't have it. The other thing that you have to keep in mind is like a lot of these synthesizers are being designed by people who are like super technical, but maybe not design savvy, you know? And I feel like, you know, I own, uh, I have a Moog Little Fatty, <laughs> which is a synthesizer. <laughs> it was one of the first, it was it was the last synth that Bob Moog worked on. And it was Moog's kind of first big for, foray back into like what would be considered affordable analog synths. Um, and I got it. And, you know, naming a synth Little Fatty is just incomprehensible to me. I don't understand why they did it. Um, it's just a stupid name. And it's not a very aesthetically pleasing synth to look at, but it was kind of my first ability to have that Moog filter and to have that Moog oscillator. And so I, I jumped on it. I was like, I have to get this thing. And that was a big synth uh, for Wilderness. I got that right before I started Wilderness and it's all over that record. And you know, since then, I think Moog has really nailed it as far as their design aesthetic, like with the Mother 32 and the Grandmother and Matriarch. Those are all beautiful looking synthesizers. Um, and I just picked up an ASM Hydrosynth, which is a synth uh, developed by a team out of China. 
and I would say that it's also equally inspiring. Um, it's a synth where I'm kind of having this realization, like I'm, it's, it's very inspiring to me in a way that I haven't been inspired by a uh, polysynth in a while. So I've been really excited to work with, I haven't, haven't really used it on anything uh, that I've released yet, but um, it will definitely feature on a lot of things because I just, I love it. It's a great synth. Lil Fatty, the well, album. Lil Fatty. <laughs> <laughs> I can't fault him. I mean, Moog is a company, is really beautiful. They're based in Asheville. Asheville is just like hippie central. And I love it. I, you know, had family from Asheville and I went to the last Moog Fest that they held in Asheville, North Carolina before they moved it. And um, yeah, Moog's a, it's a beautiful company. Um, and one of my favorite modular companies, Make Noise, uh, you know, Tony, uh, the developer for Make Noise came out of Moog and started his own company and they're based in Asheville as well. And yeah, just nothing but love for that. And so, you know, a little fatty. <laughs> All right. If well, I knew what I was doing, I'd really want a polybox. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's but a I lot of also be scared that it's a Russian one and it's something went wrong. Who knows what you could do. I mean, it. I think the thing I think the thing about it is like it's just you you I feel like as a musician you you and you there's some there's some common element to like a guitar you know like if you sit down with a guitar or a bass and you play it you kind of immediately know if it's a instrument that you can connect to um and i feel the same way about synthesizers you know i was in austin texas and i went to switched on which is uh probably my favorite synth shop in the country and uh they had a yamaha cs20 which is like the baby brother of the cs80 which is what Miguelis used for blade runner and I started playing and I immediately just connected to it. I was like, I love the sound of this synthesizer. It had a lot of thing I always look for. I remember as a kid going into Guitar Center and you walk into the keyboard section and there'd be some guy working there who didn't really know very much about synths. And he'd be like, look at this one. It's got a lot of knobs. It's got a lot of lights on it. <laughs> and, I, you know, I the CS20, has it has memory buttons i think it has like eight buttons so you can you can program it and save things but like the mother 32 has no memory you can't save anything uh the korg ms20 is that way and i think there's something cool about that i like the that's why i got into modular like i love the destructive quality of it i love that i'm going to build a patch and when it's when i pull those cables out it's gone and that's okay like i think there's something kind of beautiful about that and then um yeah, I mean, it's kind of refreshing to use a synth that has no screen, but it's just, you know, there's the fundamental of it. And you, and, you know, with the Yamaha, with the CS20, it's the same, the same thing I think that makes the CS80 great, which is, you know, obviously it doesn't cost you $40,000 like a CS80, but um, it, you know, the, the, the filter on it has this just incredible character. And the oscillators have this incredible character. And it, when I got it, the first thing I did is I had to, saw waves and i kind of detuned one of them and then filtered it a little bit and like all of a sudden you have the lead sound from blade runner and it was like it was the exact you know you're, you're talking about the exact sound and um it's it was really beautiful it was like this weird um you know like i'm literally creating this sound that uh, was such a big part of my upbringing um and the things i connected to as a kid 
watching Blade Runner over and over. Yeah, it was. It had to be the hairs. The hairs in the back of my neck stood up. Like I was just really, and yeah. So I had to leave Austin with that synthesizer. (laughs) Like it's just the way it worked. Obviously. And um, yeah, and it's big and heavy, and it yeah, it weighs a ton, and it's got wood paneling all over it, and it's yeah, it's a it's a weird old beast, but I love it. And um, you know, it's older than I am, and that's cool. It's like a weird dinosaur of a of a you know keyboard but it's it's technology that's like ingrained in everybody's or the people that you know care about synth scores it's like a part of history you know so i've got a friend who's got a crazy bukla set up yeah and it's just like i where i just wonder to myself where do you even start if you want to make <laughs> something like what do you what do you do yeah, but I mean that Look goes at the back keyboard to the... on that thing. It's a bird. What, what do you do? <laughs> but that's kind of the cool thing about the, what I was saying before about the conversation. Like you're having a conversation with the instrument, and that it, it, that's not truer anywhere else than modular. I mean, um, I learned so Bukla. Uh, I'm f- uh, friends with Alessandro Cortini, who's the keyboard player for Nine Inch Nails, and. I met him through Casper. Casper, my buddy in Berlin, does all of his album art um, for his solo stuff. And I was in New York City because at the time Casper was living in New York and Alessandro came in and I was a kid who grew up listening to Nine Nails, so it was kind of like this big, like, ooh. And he was super nice. I mean, he's just a sweetheart of a human being. But one of the days we all kind of got up and he was like, I'm going to go to Control, which is a modular shop in Brooklyn. And he was like, do you want to go? And I was like, yeah. So I went with him. And uh, on the way, we ran into uh, Robert Lowe, who is an uh, amazing avant-garde, experimental, largely modular musician. Did a lot of stuff with Johan Johansson and a lot of great stuff in his own right. And uh, so so basically me and Alessandro and Robert... (laughs) go to control and I'm just sort of like in awe and I had never touched a modular synth and so Robert sat and kind of made a patch and showed me how it worked and I could follow it and it and I was just sort of like okay this isn't as daunting as I thought but it was also like the whole thing is so fluid and open-ended and it felt like this kind of there was continuity from where I had come from of, you know, working with trackers and computer systems and then getting a hardware synthesizer. And you're like, okay, I can, I understand the architecture of this, but then all of a sudden you're looking at like, what is essentially like the MC Escher realization of synth architecture where like everything goes in every direction. It doesn't matter. You know, you can do whatever you want. And I just immediately fell in love with that. Um, it took me years before I would take the leap financially because modular is just a <laughs> money pit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I don't regret it at all. And I think that the stuff that I have um, is endlessly inspiring. And um, and I just, yeah, it's, it's uh, that was a really formative moment for me, like walking to that shop and having that experience and just being like, wow, this is, really really fascinating and uh, I always tell people you know that are uh, thinking about it you know obviously Buchla there's kind of two schools of thought with modular um, because in the beginning there were two it was Bob Moog on the east coast and 
uh, Don Buchla on the West Coast. Buchla stuff was way more experimental. The West Coast sound was, you know, you're talking about uh, silver, silver apples of the moon, and like just this weird kind of spacey, um, you know, kind of more in the vein of something like Raymond Scott or, um, you know, just more experimental stuff. It's going to be a little harder to listen to. Um, and versus what Bob Moog was doing, which was way more commercialized. Um, cause I mean, in the end he was sort of moving towards taking the Moog modular philosophy, the oscillator and the filter, and then him and Herb Deutsch essentially put a keyboard on it and it became the synth you could buy and put in your home. And that revolutionized music. Um, and very different sounds, but um, both inspiring and both, uh, you know, th this indelible mark on music making, um, whether you know it or not, you know. Um, I think that all the music you hear today, like they all owe a debt to those, to that, that stuff. So I love, I love it. I mean, I love when I see people perform on a bukla, like when Alessandro writes something with a bukla and it's just noisy and gnarly and <laughs> I love that. I think it's great because it's it's Alessandro having a conversation with his easel, you know, and um, same could be said, you know, people like Rick Wakeman or whatever, you know, like it's or, or Tangerine Dream, you know, like they're 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 able to process the emotion that they feel through a piece of technology that's literally not living. Um, and that's kind of miraculous. You know, it's like magic. To a small degree, I can relate to this because even being a garbage guitar player, <laughs> like just awful, I would know just holding a guitar, like whether this one would be something I could work with or something that I absolutely not want anything to do with. Sure. And what's cool about that is like you as a, you as a guitar player are different than the next guy who's the guitar player is the next guy is the next guy is like Van Halen, you know? So like at the end of the day, a guitar that might, you know, for whatever reason, Van Halen came onto earth and essentially his fingers were able to move in a certain way that he could do what he did, you know? And I think it's kind of, it's, it's incredibly fascinating to me that certain people, I, I mean, I love it. I love playing festivals because when I meet a lot of other synth musicians uh, and we have a conversation about like, what they do or what they use or what they like, you know, like Nick and I will sit around and talk. We talk a lot on Instagram about like some piece of gear and like there's synths that he loves, you know, he's a huge Prophet 6 guy. He loves the Prophet 6, um, you know. I never really connected super hard to Pro the prophet, but he makes great music and his stuff's awesome. And, and it speaks to him. And, and when he speaks through it, he makes Betamax and a lot of people love that. And yeah. I think that that's kind of what's really, I think, impressive about what a lot of synth artists are able to do and how they're able to touch people and, and do so, you know, by speaking through electronic instruments. Yeah, it's it's incredible how, you know, different pieces of gear, while not setting one person creatively on fire, could, could absolutely do it for another person. Sure. And, uh, you know, just the different tangents or the different 
expressions of of what work for people profit six being one I, I hear that pretty uh, often where profit six comes up where it's like i didn't like it or i love it like i think pertivator uses profit six a lot sure um so you know it's just one of those things it's very interesting sure. um how different pieces of gear could speak to people um kyle do you have anything else He's rubbing his face right now, so I think the Novocaine is is yeah. fully wearing off. Uh, we're trending downward. Uh, we're trending downward. <laughs> so I just want to make sure uh, we have anything else we want to talk about before we sign off. No, I think this has been really cool. Um, I really appreciate you coming on yeah. again. Um, thank you. It, it means a lot to both of us uh, being oh, yeah. fans of your music, and um, you know, so please pick up the new album, get it on vinyl, as you should do. Because that's just if it's still available, if it hasn't yeah, sold out. Yeah, yet. I think there's. Endless I think Destiny. there are some left. I think there are. So, yeah, Endless Destiny re- released a couple, what two days ago? I think at this point. Yeah, um, and all of the, I believe all of the EPs have been reissued on vinyl. So if you don't have those, they're back in stock. So oh, good, because yeah. I need to get. I'm not like Kyle. I don't own five copies. Well, until next time, this is Eric. This is Kyle. And uh, you've been chatting with us. Listen to us. Listen, yeah, chatting with makeup and Bendy set. Matt, thank you for coming on. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Some motherfucking paradise I can